My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. Like, oh, here we go, Mark. Off again with you. Mark being Mark again. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, and it's like therapy, you know? If I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. Yeah. So, who are we talking about today, Matt? Welcome to the My Family Picks Some Crazy Podcast. You know who I am. I'm your host, Mark Palmer. And I'm rocking the mic today because it is the 20th anniversary of, you know, a mass trauma ritual unlike any we've seen on the planet. I don't even have to say it. You guys know this is the My Family Thinks Some Crazy Podcast and we are not afraid of censorship. We are backed up because today's guest is the man, the other man behind Content Safe. You remember Matt Raymer? Well, this guy has his own podcast called Not Medical Advice. And him and Matt Raymer have a new podcast called Deplatformed. So check them out, contentsafe.co, Not Medical Advice. But without further ado, we are casting a magic spell to reverse the evil that was done 20 years ago. Okay, tune in to this awesome, energetic conversation with Daryl Becker. He's got the tools, he's got the tips. He's been working in human health and wellness for multiple decades. Three decades? I don't know, he said he was like 59, but he looks like he's 30. So I I don't know how old Daryl is, he's a mystery man, but... Damn, I'm feeling good. I hope you guys enjoy this episode and be sure to support us on the Patreon. Patreon.com slash MFTIC. We got a new episode of Scene coming out. That's Scene with three E's Scene. That's right. The synchromistic exploration of the ever-expanding now. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy. Now I understand that I was, you know, really abducted and actually inserted into the Montauk Project as, as one of those children or something like that, you know. 
that was a psychic uh, named Stuart Swordlow made that claim of me. If you use those logical fallacies to make a decision, the problem is it's kind of like what you call a virus scanner for your mind. If you use a logical fallacy to make a decision, like the appeal to authority. ultimate fighting championship or you know MMA fights that kind of thing they do a lot of bluster ahead of time and that's all theater and show before the actual combat but in the midst of it they are the most calm and collected people because they're going in to do the most dangerous brain damaging potential situations possible you know getting struck in the head too many times in order to to, to triumph over that and get to that belt and that 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 winning point the reigning theory that was promoted, again, by the Rockefeller Medicine Institute. You know, like, the whole institution of those people, the, the folks who funded all of the doctors, all of Big Pharma, and their conglomerates in insurance and banking that go behind all of them. And they own the five major media companies, so they're all walking in lockstep to go say the same thing. A pathogen comes from outside. You know, at first it used to be bacteria. Then they could actually find bacteria, you know, under scopes. And then they came up with a theory of viruses before they even had electron microscopy. So they didn't even see viruses, but they theorized viruses. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the My Family Thinks Some Crazy podcast. I'm your host, Mark Palmer, and with me is my lovely girlfriend and co-host, Tara. How are you today? <clears throat> wonderful. We're sitting lakeside having a wonderful conversation here, kind of in the middle of it by now with all this connection issues with Daryl Becker, a friend of mine through Matt Raymer, past guest on the show, CEO of Content Safe, and Daryl has his own clinic and is extremely well informed as far as how to keep your body well and functioning. So Daryl, I'm super excited to talk to you today. This is a, a theme in my, my and Tara's life recently is taking back our health and, and living as healthy as we can, starting with the diet, but without uh, going too far, how are you today? I'm doing great. I just got off a whole other podcast, touching on different topics, and I'm psyched to get back to my roots of talking about health. I'm a licensed acupuncturist over here on the big island of Hawaii, and 
my show is not medical advice where I get to cover various medical stories and options that you never heard of or never seriously considered. But yeah, I, I love being on your show and I'm grateful to check out what we can do. Thank you. Yeah. And, you know, we're not looking for medical advice in case any lawyers or hospitals or police officers are listening. I, I love the title of your show. I think it's really ludicrous that we live in a world where there's certain people who have authority over other people's health in that way. You know, like you can't even give advice without legal ramifications, potentially based on how you say things and word things. So, yeah, I mean, when did this journey start for you? Were you always kind of uh, into eating healthy or was it maybe like a bad stint with your health that pushed you into getting healthier? How did this journey start for you, Daryl? Well, to get make it nice and simple, I had health problems. I noticed as a child that after my cat Chico died, I was showing up as very allergic. I was really like having nasal allergies and, you know, the kind of redness of the, the eyes and, and even sometimes itchiness in, in my mouth when I went to friends who had cats or dogs or both, uh, especially if they had indoor animals and, and stuff like that. I, I basically was, I began to develop what are called allergies. And I went to an so-called allergy doctor where they do that skin test where they inject various substances into the skin of your arm, the forearm in this case, and see what reacts. And then that that's the diagnostic to show, oh, you're allergic. And then they try to, you know, whatever those substances are, they start injecting them in, intramuscularly into your arm to see if, you know, more and more each week so that you'll build up resistance and not be allergic to that stuff anymore. Well, that did not work for me at all. and. It doesn't work for a lot of people because as I've, you know, learned later, that doesn't, it doesn't work that way. You know, it was, it was, and certainly is very food-based. It took me a long time to realize that, but I had medical problems. I went, I moved to Vermont and went through some years of college there. And I, I dropped out of uh, my bachelor's program. I realized it was just a waste of money and time. And I had no direction in my life. I, I found myself with like, you know, like allergies and stuff. And I got introduced to a medical professional, a specific type of chiropractor who's, you know, knew how to find out what's going on, what is biocompatible with the body, what to treat and when and how and how much. They're a type of chiropractor called a clinical kinesiologist who also knows some of applied kinesiology and then just mixing the two together as well as other disciplines and becoming a contractor for my body. I'd go in with allergies. I'd walk out feeling way better. And six years later, as I was going there one time when I was sick, he saw my skills because he was actually uh, backing up. It was just, um, it was like a few years later, I was coming there with my girlfriend. And then later on, showing up, you know, with my girlfriend who's pregnant with our daughter. And he was the one to help her get out of back pain and, you know, keep the pregnancy on, on the up and up and track her using the methods of clinical kinesiology and the subtle methods of biocompatibility, what is biocompatible for her body and for the baby's body inside of her and finding and tracking what that is. 
And he started teaching me as I was going in, we're going in as like a little family. He'd be teaching me how to help my girlfriend with various methods. And he'd be teaching me how to help my daughter with simple things like homeopathy, since children react really swiftly with that methodology. And either you help them or it doesn't do much, but it doesn't necessarily hurt them at least. And I got to be good at that eventually. And he, he invited me into his practice to be essentially a chiropractic assistant to learn how to deliver these methods to help people. And that's how I started learning. And one year later, he got me into an acupuncture college locally so that I wouldn't have to move too far away. There were no chiropractic colleges nearby in Vermont at that time. So, and there still aren't. So chiropractic college was not an easy option, but an acupuncture college was. And that's how I got into it is I had the problems and I found ways of solutions. And now I'm in my 23rd year of practice since I started training in 98. Because uh, part of that training was I didn't just go through four years of Oriental Medical College and wait until I was done. And then I started practicing. No, I started gaining the skills and practicing right away. And, and I've been doing that ever since. And that seems like the more practical way to go about it, as opposed to how it seems to be done amongst the academics, where you spend you know, 10 years looking at books and writing papers before you actually go and put your hands on uh, you know, an actual patient in a, in a caring way. Yeah, I did that too. You know, I, um, not 10 years, though. Oriental Medical College is what I call Oriental Medical Boot Camp. You go through a procedure of learning and memorizing a lot of information that you will never, ever need to use ever again once you pass your board exams. And as a, as a method of flunking people out who don't have the chops to memorize and spit things out and be obedient and conformist. Those are the part of the two schooling lessons that I might touch on later. But yeah, I made it through Oriental Medical College twice. Actually. That's a different story, you know. But I, I did that. I also took some time to teach the last one as a professor. The training that makes sense in medical training programs like acupuncture college are a clinic where you have thousands of hours of real clients coming in off of the street, making appointments, and you have a real person that you're really there to help. And everything is being checked out by a supervisor who's got an actual license of acupuncture. And so everything I do has to, you know, needs to do fairly well because their license is riding on that. And that's the way all of us are. And we go through more than a thousand observed hours in each college for that. And that was just part of my training. But the apprenticeship that you touched on when I was apprenticed to Rick Warman, the chiropractor in Vermont, I got to hands-on learn a wide section of many different therapies, including acupuncture, since that was part of his scope of practice, his legal ability to do that. And then in acupuncture college, I went into the nuances of oriental medicine and what, where it comes from, what really makes it tick and, and other methods like that. It's been a fun road. Yeah. I wonder, you know, with the meridians of the body, understanding like the mapping out of the body, in that way. I wonder how that affects your view of people now. I mean, do you quite literally like 
look at certain parts of someone's body and say maybe if they have a rash in this on their arm that could relate to like a kidney problem or some you know is it that uh, microcosm macrocosm for you know lack of a better term yeah it it can be like that and in the beginning when i started learning all of this i came from a perspective of more of a firm belief system i got results from seeing Dr. Warman and I got, I, I watched him seemingly correlate results for what he did to, for his clients. And I had a firm conclusion on things like that. So this equals that, and this equals that. And over the years, I learned that it doesn't work that way necessarily. There's a more of a gray area of a flexibility. And now I understand the power of being uncertain and having agnosticism. So yeah, I will. You're right about that, Mark. When I see a pattern, like, for example, a skin rash on some area, I know those points and I know what that, what meridians those are. I know which spinal segment is enervating that section of the skin. That's important. That's like the circuit breaker of the body is the spine. You know, that's like, like same in the house with this real circuit breaker where parts of the, the house is lit up. Well, the spine is like that. And the acupuncture map goes along with that spinal innervation that was, has been designated by many thousands of autopsies, seeing where the nerves go. Because those nerves that go from the spine, they go to certain dermatomes or skin sections, which go along with various meridians, which have been mapped out. And those nerves also go from that vertebrae to specific organs in the abdomen, or even right up to the brain itself, the other organ like that. So understanding the connections of all of that leaves a lot more of an open-mindedness for me nowadays where I understand, okay, it might be this, also could be this, this, and this. And it's an open-minded perspective. That's why it's called holistic healthcare, which is the opposite of allopathic healthcare. Holistic means of the whole. So the whole body is being looked at. All of the there's multi-vectors, many different directions all coming in to create the situation. Sometimes you get lucky, and especially for someone who's younger or healthier, one major thing is causing a situation, and you can focus your attention on that one major causal vector. But the older or the more problems medically there are, then you have many vectors causing something. So keeping an open mind to that and being more flexible with it is important. So I like, I like the confidence that I have. Like I grew up in New York, so I got this kind of like a double middle finger attitude coming out of my voice, like right now, a little bit aggro, as some would call it, you know, and I understand that that's because that's, I'm, I'm really enthusiastic and intense and, and I'm, I'm very confident sounding, which could sound arrogant, or it could even sound like I am religiously fervent in my belief and conclusion but I'm actually not. I actually, I'm confident before I take action that I'm taking the best action I know how. But right after that, especially after they leave, I can double check and think, you know, especially if, if evidence shows otherwise, I didn't get the results that I wanted. I could be wrong. So I'm fully on back into agnosticism and I could be wrong. And I, I look at it that way, you know? Yeah, truly, you know, neutral approach or a scientific approach in the 
truest sense of the word and not what we seem to be given as science these days. But yeah, I think, you know, one area I wanted to go in is how does somebody create the foundation of health in their life so that they, you know, reduce those vectors when they come to someone like you, the, you know, the job is a little easier, so to speak for you. That's a great question. It kind of goes along with something I've been trying to write essay-wise for a while. How do I be a better and more effective client to a healthcare professional? How do I how do I work with them in a better way instead of obviously making their job harder? And I do notice that, you know, of course, the clients that automatically intuitively know this is the answers to that are easier to work for. And the people who have an entitlement perspective or a victim mentality perspective are harder to get results for. Obviously, it's going to be a more of a challenge to help them and, and address their, their situation and get results with them and with their help because they could be going counter to what I'm doing. I think the easiest place to start is empowerment, that depending on how problematic your healthcare situation is, is how much you're probably able and willing to learn about health. The bigger the problem, the less ability you have to learn all about health and what's gotten you into the situation you're in. <laughs> and the smaller the problem, the, the bigger the ability that you have to advance your knowledge and skills to help yourself. I, I look at it this way. Like Mark, there's basically all things come to two causes for disease. There are toxicity, things that just really shouldn't be there at all. And there are two types of toxins, endotoxins that the body produces as a result of, you know, certain situations and exotoxins, toxins that come in from outside in the 21st century world that are just really challenging for the body to handle and deal with. And that's toxin side. And the flip side, of course, is deficiency. You know, real nutrition, real specific nutrients are needed for each specific body to optimize whatever it's trying to do, metabolically speaking. And if there's a deficiency in those nutrients, there's going to be deficiency syndromes. So it really comes down to how do you figure out what's, what are the toxins and how do you reduce them? And how do you figure out what are the deficiencies and how do you boost them up? And either you learn how to do it the hard way, like I did, or you can just go ahead and, you know, hire someone who knows how to do it. I, I like to say that for my work, I, I, not medical advice, not medicaladvice.co, I get to help people around the world and across the U.S. build a healthcare team. I help them. I, I, I do a session with them over Zoom like this, and I find out what their obstacles are and what their price range is and what they're willing to invest in time and money and how far they're willing to drive. And I line them up with various professionals like myself and the questions to interview them and the answers to look for and what you can expect and, and how to be a client that gets better results from such a practitioner like myself and others. And, and to, you know, to, you know, depending on what the investment level is, to not depend on one of them, but to build a team of them that do different things. Because usually one-stop shopping, like with Dr. Warman that I used to work for, is rare. Usually you're going to need several professionals if you have a chronic injury or illness that has resisted treatment. 
I think I like to give people the hope that you don't have to become a professional. You don't have to keep shooting blind like this, where I'm going to try this self-help book and I'm going to try this doctor, you know, this MD doctor for a long period of time and wishing I could get better results. That's shooting blind. You can instead shoot with wisdom and with what I call looking for biocompatibility and there'd be energetic compatibility as well. So I like to help people find an actual team of professionals who can do that. I also, of course, will give them dietary and lifestyle suggestions and even some supplements that are likely to help them and not hurt them and, and how to use them properly. There's many answers to, you know, besides just hiring me, you could just learn about all of this too. I, in fact, I encourage you, don't think, unless you're desperate, don't think that you can't learn to do what I do. You can. Well, and, yeah. and hence why we, we have you here, my friend, to, to share your, your wisdom. You'd said something that was really interesting and it dawned on me when this all started for me, trying to understand why people get sick, why our society treats people the way it does. And the, the topic of victim mentality was something that was very, very much a part of my understanding all of all this and even entitlement mentality because i live in you know connecticut and i'm sure you know from being a new yorker and going to vermont like there's a lot of entitled people in connecticut so so we've we got yeah. both sides of it victim and entitled mentality here and i just i want to pause on that and really go maybe a little further to help illustrate the point that health is more mental than it is physical in a lot of ways and even spiritual if we want to extrapolate that further that's a really good point the mental emotional terrain are another aspect of what i also train people sometimes i have to once i find the willingness i'll work with them individually on skills of critical thinking actual methods to resolve open loops where, you know, you have the same thing. I'm never going to get any better. I, none of the, I've tried everything. That's the phrase I hate hearing the most. N none of the doctors are any good. Like, like these self-help books are so crazy hard. Like, okay. So that they just keep saying the same thing. And then emotionally feeling the same frustration because they want the health, but they don't get the sadness. They lost the health and, and that's lost. That's sadness. And the fear, I'm never going to get it. And that's, you're going to lose it. You're going to like, I'm going to, I'm going to die. I'm going to die like this. I'm going to miss all these opportunities. And those things are going to happen for a lot of people. And yeah, they're going to be having some entitlement thinking that they're emulating from people who taught them how to think as an entitled person, as deserve oriented language, as what's called in nonviolent communication speak. And they're going to, you know, think in those terms and they're going to be stuck in a victim narrative in their head. My task is how do I walk them from wherever the hell they are to a better place that they are giving me the buy-in that they want to get to, whatever the result is that they want to get to. And that's the creativity part that I love, like some six to 12 hours a week. That's how often I do this job is like I'm... I'm just working as much as I can to help them get to where they want to go, creatively speaking, and find that pathway out, which is unique. So keep this one in mind, monopoly thinking. This is another idea. 
if you're thinking, you're like, what's the answer? What is the answer to health? Like, well, it's a specific custom built thing. There's a word called bespoke. It's another fancy British term for custom built like that. And each person is a custom situation like that. There's no one size fits all. The oil filter in my car is not going to fit in your guys's cars over there in Connecticut, unless you guys drive a 2001 Honda CRV. And <laughs> that is a car we were looking at buying. Coincidentally yeah. enough, we that needed. was my first car. <laughs> oh, you know, it's it's quite a hell of a car, and and it, it can last a damn long time. And parts are fairly affordable for them, but it's going to be very different for each person. So just keeping in mind that monopoly thinking is you're looking for one answer. You're looking for one ruler, one situation and plurality thinking is like that, where I said there was multiple vectors that caused the situation and you can learn to line them up and address the biggest vectors that cause it, or you hire someone who does it, or you just, have a great mental attitude and you're just so brilliant with your mind and balancing your heart for whatever you do, your meditation, your cleansing, that you pretty much fix yourself and you may as well then become a life coach and, and heal, help other people heal themselves like that. Wow. That's not my path personally. Like I, I'm a method man. I love like methodology and, and things. And I, I love that people have solutions to things. You've heard of Wim Hof? for example. Yeah. 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 So that guy came up with some solutions to his grief and sadness of the passing of his wife. And his solution was to be an inspiration to millions around the world and to achieve things that are seemingly superhuman, or they just actually just show a, a stronger side of human like that verified. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's, I take inspiration for people like that. You get that good and you market it well you get those rewards of being Wim Hof level of, of recognition. And if you fuck up like I have, you get Daryl levels of recognition, <laughs> you know, because I have in terms of my marketing and in terms of my investments over the years, in terms of money and girlfriend and such. I, I, I've even, I've been a marital veteran. I've been married and divorced twice. So I've made big mistakes, obviously. But I'm learning to you know, advance myself forward like that. I think that the opportunity is when you get step out of the firm conclusions of monopoly thinking and you move towards plurality thinking, that there's many solutions. When you move away from deserve-oriented language and thinking towards the idea that you desire things, mm. not deserve, but you desire things, that's good. And then you focus on just practically and predictably achieving what you desire. And you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Everything I've given you so far on the, this podcast is stuff other people have perfected. I stand on the shoulders of giants like that. You know, that I'll tell you when there's an original Daryl quote, but there's going to be a whole lot of quotes from other people. <laughs> well, and you know what? All art is stolen, Daryl. So I think we're all meant to stand on each other's shoulders and inspire each other and emulate each other in that way. But the picture you're painting is very much, you know, I was expecting maybe some more information on diet, not that you can't go into that, but I think really what we're getting at here is brain food and, you know, that your mental diet or your energetic diet is really 
uh, more sometimes important than what you're actually eating. I'm not suggesting people, you know, if you meditate well, you can eat only Doritos and ice cream. But, you know, I, I think you, you can have more leeway to enjoy the more maybe savory and sweet things in life when you have that uh, desire mentality and, and aren't, you know, being the victim. And we don't even need to go into that because like you said, you know, this is all stuff that other people have helped you and I understand. But when it comes to your ups and downs in life, have you noticed when you were down, there were certain things that you used yourself to get back to that place where you feel like, okay, now I'm better. Now I'm Daryl again. Yeah. Now I'm Daryl again. That's a great <laughs> reference point. Yeah, there are. And I, what I consume physically as food and what I consume as images and media and, and words and thoughts, what I consume as far as my attention span of, you know, I am the sum of the five people I hang out with the most, you know, like that kind of thing. And the energy that I'm surrounded by, I see that the impact of that is I try to now be more conscious about my choices of that. I'm 49 now, so I have less time to mess up. You know, the impact is larger for me if I mess up. But there are methods to get where I want to go. And I'm grateful for all the people who've shown and taught me how to be more effective medically for other people. And then medically for the most challenging client I will ever have, Daryl Becker, you know, <laughs> when I'm sick and injured is the most challenging client I would ever face because putting together a jigsaw puzzle that I'm looking down upon is easy. And I can go from all these angles that's working on other clients, right? Working for you guys, for example, it'd be so simple to give you, you know, basically some good session where I'm, I'm helping to get results for you, medically speaking, because I can, I get to see all the pieces, but I'm very close to the Daryl problem. And if I happen to be hurt or sick or both, then it's even more challenging to think clearly. And then I am the jigsaw puzzle putting me together. That's, that's the part that gets challenging like that. This is why for people out there watching and listening that are thinking, I can't, I, I, I'm in a dire straits medically. I don't have time to figure out how to treat myself. Uh, I, I, I need someone to help me. That's great to understand that. You might become like a Wim Hof and you help yourself out of the problem. Or you might just really want to, you know, actually tack, you know, have a good tactic on knowing how to find the good person and going with them to, and, and tracking results. Everything is all about results, basically. So yeah, indeed. I, I moved away from grains for myself. I, I reduced dairy down as well. Um, no longer drink coffee. And those were things for me that worked like that. And there's more things to go that continue that process. Drink more water. Doing exercise specifically, that was a big one. Adding that into my diet. I got that little, little thing where I like to say, you, you know, it'd be a good idea to always be able to do your age in push-ups. You know, so... I'm up to 67 push-ups now, and my goal is to get to 100 way before I'm 100, so it's easier, you know, <laughs> like that. 50 is no problem, you know, and I remember when 40 left me feeling sore for days, you know, like that. And I certainly, 
I work with people where they're really challenged just to get to 30. And I work with people where their medical conditions, they're not going to be able to do one like that. They're already in that situation. But there's a different custom situation for each person's trajectory like that. Here's one that I'll put out to you. Meaning and purpose to your life. Why do you want to keep breathing tomorrow? Why is it that you want to get healthy? What is it that you live for? What gives, you know, what's the impact that you want to make on the world? What's the impact that you want to make on yourself? You know, like that. What do you strive for? What do you want to achieve? You know, like I want to be on big shows, you know, like not just in addition to little shows like this. And so I've got a ways to go before I get on Joe Rogan, you know, <laughs> so I've got a, got a ways to go like that kind of thing. But maybe I get there faster by just doing the right kind of work. But because I have a goal like that, I have many reasons to keep living. Do you know what I mean? Like, imagine, can you imagine working for someone where they're completely unsure about why they're alive and what, what gives them meaning and purpose? I, I mean, I, I see your bright, shiny, happy faces over there you know, by a beautiful Connecticut lake. And I think, well, you guys must have achieved some meaning and purpose to your life, <laughs> right? Yeah, but do you guys I, have I, friends? I, do, do either of you have friends where they struggle? They don't really know where they're going and why they want to be here? Yeah, I mean, you know, maybe this is a little too personal and no offense to you if you're listening, but my past co-hosts were kind of holding me back in that way. And, and I had to, you know, people know who've listened to the show, you know, I, I made the decision to to move on without them as a part of the show. And, you know, the doors open if they ever want to come back. But it was a it was a matter of like, you know, I don't think your heart's in this. I don't think you're as proactive as me, you know, and I, I couldn't work with someone like that. So I can't imagine working for someone like that, although I probably have with the many, many jobs I've had and. And yeah, I mean, now I work for Sam Tripoli, who his thoughts and, and feelings are live on Tinfoil Hat twice a week. So I'm pretty sure people know where he's at. And I feel really fortunate to do that. But yeah, this this is all rented time over here. <laughs> we don't own this uh, lake house here. Oh, yeah. And I don't own this rental that I'm in right now either. <laughs> thanks to the poor choices I made earlier, you know. I am happy that I do have meaning and purpose in my life. And I guess that that's the cost benefit analysis thing where for me, right. because of having some skills that I've developed over, you know, even more than the 23 years professionally, I, I really, I find it a fun challenge to help people who have no meaning and purpose to their life. As long as they pay me, I'm happy to try to find that and take it on as a challenge, like a jigsaw puzzle. Like I'm going to solve this as best as I'm able to. And I don't have an open loop about it at the end of the day, when, when they're done and they go home, I'm not thinking about them anymore because I know I did my best to help them move towards that goal a little bit more to have meaning and purpose to their life, to feel and be healthier, to have their body and self repair and you know, auto regeneration systems turned back on to regenerate and, and, and make things more functional. The body loves to make it fun itself functional. It's what's wonderful about it. And I've done my best to go in that direction. And then they can be going along with me or they could fight me. They could continuously find ways to avoid 
finding meaning and purpose to their life and they can continue to keep the mental stories going on in their head. And I just find that an interesting challenge. Now in my unpaid life, I would find that challenging because again, I am the sum of the five people I hang out the most with. And if I was to be around that kind of attitude, that would be a challenge. I've actually been married to that as well. That's not good. So I, I have a deep well of optimism and enthusiasm, and I, I seek that kind of thing in my unpaid life. In my paid life, though, I find it an interesting challenge. Like, I'm going to try to help no matter what. Yeah. I, I do get to say, no, I don't have to work for everyone because I have enough clients where I can actually say, no, I'm, I, I think I'm going to refer you to someone who I think would serve you even better than someone who might talk more mellowly and calmly and have that nice psychiatrist voice like Andrew Kaufman, for example, or someone who's like that, you know, like that, yeah. that not the aggro Daryl voice kind of thing. Someone who could meet them where they're at better than I might be able to. But yeah, I'm just very optimistic that deep within everyone is that seed of finding what drives them, that what motivates them and using that to spur healing on. Yeah. And you know, I want to turn it on to the listeners and give you an opportunity to help us and, and the folks listening, because, you know, the title of the show, it's very relatable. I'm sure there's many people out there who feel the same way. And like we discussed before we were recording, I, you know, completely became the black sheep of my family. The more and more I looked into organics, veganism, you know, avoiding the medical industry, avoiding hospitals, avoiding pharmaceuticals. These are all decisions I made after, you know, pretty thorough research. And when I expressed that fear or doubt or skepticism in any shape or form, my family was always like the quickest to be like, oh, yeah, give me a break with that. You know, whereas friends might have been a little more patient, but still less, not as <laughs> quick to to follow suit. And and yeah, I'm wondering, like, obviously, you have the my body, my choice. But, you know, what do you say to folks who you know are trying to change their health for the better and have maybe some unhealthy influences in their life in the form of uh, family members? Well, the important part is to get them into a pit of shame where they acknowledge how much they fucked up and see what a useless point of this whole life thing is. Uh, <laughs> so, that's the opposite of what to do. No, they, they already do that shame spiral on their own, unfortunately. No, it's the other way where I'm finding a point of connection. I, I like to call it a bridge of empathy. Like, as I, I built like that over to you guys right now, like, what is it that connects us so that we both know that we authentically care about each other? And then I find out as a person, what do they care about and how do they strengthen the bonds of what they care about? So a person who literally cares about nothing and is numb to the world would be the most challenging person to work for. They don't self-medicate as a rule because they don't even care to shift their mindset by some type of self-medication they, that is the hardest person to work for. They're, they're numb and they're, they're literally on their way checking out, frequently suicidal. The, the more easier person to work for just at the very least self-medicates. It's hard. Their struggles are real. 
they have no goals and no accomplishment that they're reaching for, but they still self-medicate to change their perspective. They still want to feel better or at least change their perspective by, you know, whether drugs or some substance or videos or, you know, God damn, even like consistent indulgence and in exercises like yoga can still be a checking out version if they don't have goals that they're moving towards, right? And, and don't get me wrong. I think things like exercise and yoga are really important and awesome. But if someone is hiding from what moves them along towards a, a healthy trajectory, I, I find it's, it's a tricky thing like that. I, have the, I build the bridge of empathy between me and them. So they, they know me and they like me and they trust me. And then I try to ask them questions to, that give me a clue as to what's, what are they willing to acknowledge about themselves and their responsibility. That's that word, ability to respond, responsibility, you know, like that. If they have a low sense of responsibility, that they, they, they don't see that they have an ability to respond to their situation, they will have that victim mentality of being disempowered. And I'll see about, is there a way to, I can increase their empowerment. They could have a low level of courage. Courage is taught to boys more than women or more than girls, really. They are, you are shamed as a boy if you do not demonstrate bravery and courage, more so than you are shamed as a girl if you do not do the same. And that goes on to then becoming men and women. So in, in my practice and, and experience, I see that the passive nature of that, of not being growing up with like really training the bravery and courage that could use a little work for some people. So I'll just see what is it that I can inspire them? Where are they brave in their life? That's always a question. There's, there's somewhere they're brave in their life, especially if they came to hire me, that was bravery, you know, cause I am not just a licensed acupuncturist. I am a holistic healthcare provider. I'm going to buck the system. I, I speak of things like the terrain model of disease and health, which is completely, you know, different than what people are, are used to thinking and hearing about. I'll, I'll speak of, you know, the oriental medical theories, of course, too, which is also going to sound kind of poetic and flowery. Where are they brave in their life? And I'm trying to find a bridge to them to see what can I, what can I lift up with them to point them out? And for some people, it is trying uh, a new thing. And for some people, it's going back to an old thing. And for some, it's aesthetics like art, like this artwork that we're doing with words right now. And, and, and the, light, the lighting that you have behind you, that's aesthetics. And for some people, it's achievement, like getting on, you know, widely listened to podcasts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, bravo to you for, for putting it together that way. And, and yeah, I think, you know, where better to connect through not medical advice with Daryl Becker. I mean, you really kind of point, put it together. Tara, take it away. I'm, I'm kind of um, I'm, I'm not lost for words, but I definitely, I mean, yeah, I feel like we've kind of really gotten into the, the mental health side of things more than I yeah. expected. I really, in a, in a great, surprisingly great way, I appreciate talking about all this because it's everything that we've been talking about with seeing the synchromystic exploration of the ever expanding now and using these energetic tools to shape your life into empower ourselves yeah empower ourselves and and recreate your life get away from the matrix 
our in our lives and help to elevate us out of those victim that victim mentality or that entitlement mentality that we slip into and out of and yeah and 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 yeah changing our perception of life to to create meaning and purpose for ourselves day to day moment to moment i think yeah and, and that's part of the mental health and health starting like in your mind because if you can't like some people can't even fathom that i mean i know for myself it's been a big challenge to like why should i care about my physical health why is it like it seems like you know everything else in the world going on or my, my emotions like my emotions get the best of me i can't figure them out and then so it's like i can't even get to my body that's how it's been in the past and i find myself going through waves of emotion and letting myself feel emotions and then bring me this clarity and then and then and then it's and then i sink into my body and i feel empowered to continue on just going through the cycles of emotions and of like yeah emotion mind body spirit kind of thing that makes any sense it makes way too much sense for me yeah <laughs> and there's a there's always a lot of impacts going on i i think that there's always going to be the habits that are learned and for me it's been a lot of unlearning various habits that's why i needed to train and learn habits of critical thinking methodology methods of critical thinking i needed to learn new skills and turn them into habits of emotionally balancing techniques methods to balance the emotional terrain not suppressing it but also not indulging in perpetuating certain feelings and and also just the understanding and attitude there are no negative feelings in the same way as there's no negative skin sensations those skin sensations that you feel whether like light taps or full-on burning or cutting are there to to show you what to do and the emotions are there to show you what's going on happiness is there to show you that you've got it that's a a quality some type of an it like for example harmony and connection effectiveness safety security those are some of the the core ones as far as the the values that are the, the it's and then of course there's anger where you want it like like that type of effectiveness or health but you don't have it so you get to feel anger if you don't have it and you want it and then sadness you lost it so you get to feel sadness if you perceive that you lost a certain quality such as health or safety or connection you you get to feel that that's there to show you to get more of it to get to get going on fixing that problem and then of course fear like you think you're going to lose a quality like that you, you think you're going to lose safety and security and someone's going to force uh, some type of experimental injectable so-called vaccines into you you know like that you get to feel the fear until you resolve the situation to your own perceptions you know assessment like that this the skin sensations and emotional sensations are there to help there are no negative ones 
but obviously too much of something is not a good thing, you know, and, you know, being stuck within a loop is traumatic and not, and being in lack of something deficient in joy, of course, is going to be a problem. So yeah, I, I, I love where you're going with all of this. What, what role do you see environment playing in that? The like your immediate the, environment. Yeah. The immediate physical environment, which includes the other ephemeral electromagnetic environment and, and the other subtle energetic, you know, ethereal environment going on around you. There's some degree of, I wonder, you know, like how much of that is being manifested by me right now, you know, like this and how much of it is actually like, you know, a, a co-creation going on around me. And I just happened to be having landed myself over here, you know, for various reasons, I landed myself in Hawaii, you know, I, I think that it, it's an aspect of what's going on. There's like an inner world and an outer world, like merging together and, and flowing through. I'm speculating right now. Cause I don't really know. All I know is that I I'm, I'm still experimenting around this one, Tara. Like I, I don't know how things actually work. I don't have a Daryl intelligence agency to verify the reality of what's going on. I, I don't have a Daryl Institute to do lab tests on everything. And I mean, subtle electromagnetic testing on everything and thoughts and all of that. But from my investigation so far, mm -hmm. the immediate environment can be deficient in certain things that you want. And it can also be toxic in things that you absolutely do not want. And so it is up to each individual to measure and designate what are you willing to take in terms of deficiencies and toxicities? Because there's going to be both everywhere on this world. I can't think of a single place that's absolutely perfect and has every bit of your needs met in terms of like every, every possible desirable quality, not, not needs, but qualities that you desire is not going to be, I can't think of a single place that would like is toxin free. And then would be missing certain things like, for example, connection to certain types of people or certain specific people that takes it back to the name of the show. You know, the, yeah. the connection to family, for example, in, in the beginning in my twenties, I thought I'm just going to lay out to my family, how they, my, my mom and dad specifically, you know, where they fucked up and what I think about that and see how they reacted to that. And I watched other people do the same thing, especially in the rise of certain media personalities like Stefan Molyneux, who came up with the idea of uh, defooing. That means like removing the family of origin, F-O-O, -O, you know, if they were deemed too toxic for you. And he was very flippant and quick to designate what is too toxic and just burning that bridge, not building a bridge of empathy, but or learning how to be a better engineer of bridges of empathy to people, but instead learning to just remove people rapidly. I'm more of a cautious engineer. I've reduced the cost of building a bridge of empathy to my family and friends and clients and people in general with the skills of critical thinking and emotional balancing and other techniques too. effective use of time, time management. And I've, I've increased the number of people I can build a bridge of empathy to, but I do a cost benefit analysis. Like that's why I'm on your show. It's like, if I didn't, if, if I didn't think that this would be a good use of my time, then I would be 
thinking, you know, I, I kind of wonder what's going on here. I, I guess I'd, I'd be really wondering about that. Like I'd, I, I'm in the wrong place. I'm on the wrong show, that kind of thing. But I, I, I can, you know, we, we worked it out and I kind of figured out, oh, this is, a, this is a perfect place for me to be. So it is the opportunity. Some would say responsibility, the ability to respond and the good opportunity to say, you designate how to use your time, where to live your life, you know, who to spend the time with. And then you have to evaluate, how are you doing with that so far? I think that's my long-winded answer. I love it. I love it. I think Hawaii is what first introduced me to the power of my own mind and healing myself. And it took me in all sorts of directions from there. So how has Hawaii affected your process? I mean, you're not from Hawaii, right? You were born elsewhere and then decided to, to go to Hawaii as we learned, you know, as a part of coming from Vermont, right? Practicing there and then eventually going out to the place you now reside to take on this clinic, right? And are you head honcho at this clinic? It's your clinic or are you one? Yeah, I'm so one man show. One man so, show. Right yeah. on. A lot of acupuncturists will work it that way. And unless they want to do some type of a group practice or a larger thing. But yeah, I moved here in 2008 because I wanted to go through, I chose to go through the laborious process of acquiring an acupuncture license. And that you know, it's a four-year, it's a medical degree, it's, it's a process, it's Eastern medical classes, Western medical classes. When I say Eastern, I mean all of the lingo and technology and terminology that you need to be an acupuncturist, that. And then a lot of the terminology that you need to understand and communicate properly with other medical professionals, the anatomy and physiology and even pharmacology, for example. We had classes on that one too reading lab tests, all of that, you know, like all, I went through all of that. There's a, I'll put that down for later, but this, this process of training is really harsh for anyone who goes through it. In case you didn't understand like that, there are small anomalous numbers of people who can go through a master's program, uh, a professional training program, a PhD program, a medical training program and not have that destroy their life, destroy their health and destroy their relationships. Right. But the vast majority of them that will do that. So y'all out there, you can look up a book called Disciplined Minds by Jeff Schmidt. It will describe the process. I went through that process that is honestly kind of destructive. I mean, that was the end of my marriage at that point, though there were reasons behind that one, of course, but I mean, it, it's really destructive to the process of, of living to go through a training program like that. I wouldn't wish acupuncture college on my worst enemy at all. That's like a, a little newsflash to people like, oh, really? Yes, really. I chose losing schools, the ones that are tiny and small, under 100 students, because if you do go through such a training program and go through a small school like that, you actually have a chance to really get higher quality learning from like, like a, a higher ratio of like student to teacher kind of thing, where it's like only a small number of people in your class and it's a little bit less regimented and there are more eclectic classes that are stuck in there that you get to learn. Like I had to, I, I was part of curriculum was to learn a little bit about iridology. That's like the iris, you know, I, looking at that sclerology, that's the sclera, the white part of the eye, Ayurveda, 
the, the basics of Ayurveda and how that actually works. A variety of massage techniques, not just oriental massage, you know, but a lot of different manipulations, various chiropractors coming in to teach. So when you go through a small school like that, you get to learn really cool ways. The clinic is really cool when you go through that kind of thing. Clinic is that somewhere, somewhere between 900 and 1200 hours of supervised work under a licensed physician of sorts that will, you know, basically then you, you work on real people and that's where the real fun begins, you know, like that. And, and as I, I mentioned last time, that was my second time through Acu College. When you generally, the problem of course, is if you choose a tiny little school like that, the chances are it'll go under just like mine did. And, and hopefully you get your license before it goes completely under, unlike, you know, the first time around for me. But most people, you go to a great big, huge school like the New England College of Acupuncture, you know, like, like that, or other uh, Pacific, a PCOM, Pacific College of Oriental Medicine, all of those big colleges like that, hundreds of people. And you get to go through the stress of what every single person in medical college gets to go through, this destruction of your actual, your ear intellect they're trying to self-select for the most obedient and conformist and philosophically apathetic, the self-reflectively apathetic people. So it's a continuation of college and of the K through 12 system, which also selects for the most, you know, the people who are considered smart, the valedictorians are those who actually fill in all their notebooks and workbooks and everything like that. And they do all their stuff. They are the ones who are considered smart, not the ones who innovate, not the ones who actually are questioning and pushing the envelope. Those people are outcasts. Those people are usually, they're too smart for school systems. So when you, you know, it's a good thing that you guys are interested in health, holistic healthcare in the do-it-yourself methodology. Everything I've learned about oriental medicine is for free online now. Everything I've learned about medicine is for free online now. There's no reason to do that with the exception of getting the medical license and getting the say-so and permission slip to then have this gang, I've got the gang of oriental medicine above me, the, the Hawaii board of, you know, acupuncture who basically is here to protect me in case anyone like you wants to try to attack me and pretend that I hurt you, you know, like that. And, and I don't even have to have, uh, actual malpractice insurance. They will stop like any attack coming at me, like directly, very simply with the legality of, do you have $40,000? to file a dispute of malpractice against me because that's not like counting what you have to pay a lawyer. You're going to need that 40,000 just to file it, just to file it. So do you have that? You like that, that kind of thing. You better have a open and shut case where like you can show that beforehand there wasn't a screwdriver that I left inside of you. And then afterwards, you know, I, I opened you up and sewed in and left some scalpels and other tools and stuff and hardware that's findable inside of you. Barring that evidence, you're not going to win a malpractice suit, you know, like that. You're just not gonna. And, and against an acupuncturist, you're just not gonna. Now, you know, would you like say that. that's the case? I mean, for most people who do suffer, I mean, obviously at the case of Daryl Becker, I don't, you know, imagine you'd be hurting any of your patients, but there are real doctors out there who have, you know, committed malpractice. And I'm wondering if you think, you know, this hospital industrial complex in a whole, you know, is more 
protective of the doctors who are kind of experimenting on people in some cases with the allopathic medicine. Is that the case in that department of things as well? Yeah, it's, it's always been the case ever since the AMA and FDA set themselves up as the de facto legitimate, in most people's mind, like place to go for medicine. And that was, of course, as you mentioned before the show, like, hey, where did this come from? This is Rockefeller medicine, where they, they basically discovered that, you know, especially Rockefeller, we're talking about like oil tycoons, people who have the most to benefit from utilizing all of this new resource of petroleum products. And they could use them to make medicines and to get the people only to use those medicines mostly. They needed to destroy the confidence and if possible, the actual legal legitimacy of all other forms of medicine. So this is before oriental medicine and acupuncture showed up uh, in North America en masse. And so at that point, they had schools of naturopathic medicine. That's where you go to see an ND, a naturopathic doctor. That's what ND stands for. Or to see a chiropractor. That's where DC is behind their name. And though there are, of course, colleges like that. So there was a thing called the Flexner Report, F-L-E-X-N-E-R Report. You can look that one up. There are, I'll try to send some links over around that one. It's, I'm going to be going into my book, not medical advice, but it's an understanding that there was a really concerted effort to delegitimize in many of these now really old people's minds, the effectiveness and safety of the many holistic healthcare modalities that were being innovated at the time and to steer people towards what, again, the insurance companies were wanting to pay for, which again, who owned the insurance companies? Yes, the same people who owned the petroleum and the same people who owned the banks at the same time were all pushing in the same direction to get the same type of basically lower and lower quality medical care at a higher and higher price, but the price would be offset paid by your so-called insurance. So like a lot of people understand nowadays with things like Facebook and other social media, if it's free, you're the product like that. So if it's coming in for free for those who have got like Medicaid and poor people type insurance, if you trust those medical situations and, and treatments and diagnostics, you're the product. You're the one who's basically risking yourself. Like they might help you. They certainly know how to sew fingers and, and other things back on. They can take care of things called warfare medicine, where they can actually repair traumatic damage, like, you know, car accidents and such. But when it comes to chronic illnesses and chronic injuries, which do not self-repair to the degree that's necessary. They know that uh, those at the top, I would say, they know that they are really, really piss poor at giving out quality treatment for the vast majority. There are higher quality treatments available for those who have money. You just need to be in the know to how to find them. So that's kind of a, a short bit of, I would say, like the history of orthodox medicine in a nutshell. Rockefeller and all of his banking buddies got very big in on steering everything in that direction. And the same thing with the education system. They needed to really buttonhole the education system, the Wontian PhD system, to create this idea that anyone who had a PhD, which at that time was only in Germany, they needed to expand that to the rest of the other industrialized countries. 
so that those would be the verified specialists who would then be qualified to teach. And then they would be, of course, those, you know, who are controlling the banks, those controlling the funding strings would be telling them exactly what they're going to teach and what they're not going to teach. And that's what created the doctors who are in that situation. They are usually not experimenting, Mark, that you, you gave that idea. They're usually just giving on-label and off-label applications of drugs and surgeries and diagnostic methods. And so there's a variety of on-label that, you know, like that's what's the standard method to treat something with, with a, whether with a drug or a surgery or specific types of diagnostics. Keep in mind, diagnostics can be harmful or they could be an off-label. An example, you ever hear of Benadryl, that medicine for allergies like that? So the on-label is for allergies. And this is an over-the-counter medicine that we all have access to. Diphenhydramine hydrochloride, Benadryl. I know it too damn well because allergies is what got me into this business here. So that's the on-label. Off-label, insomnia. So meaning like people actually are prescribed large amounts of Benadryl because for many people, it certainly will shut you down and put you to sleep, a very deep sleep actually at a cost, you know, at, at tremendous cost to various systems of the body as it tries to process the actual Benadryl going through your system. So mostly doctors mean well, mostly they don't know this because the stresses that they went through were self-selecting them to be a person who is less curious. They're less courageous. They're less humble just to acknowledge that they could get it wrong. And they're less flexible in their choices of how they consider things, kind of like many people's family members. So some people would be more flexible in considering things, like my mom, as an example. And some people, like my dad, would really rather never consider that they could get stuff wrong. And they just want to believe for their own emotional security sake that they got the right answer. Just like when they were a little kid and raised the hand and the teacher smiled and no one laughed at them. Even if the teacher is completely in the wrong, they feel like they're, they're connected like that. So these doctors are just like that. Mostly they mean well, but that doesn't stop them from being purely dangerous if you trusted them to take care of a chronic illness or chronic injury. They usually just don't know how to do that. I mean, do you guys actually, have either of you ever been hurt by a medical suggestion or a medical doctor giving you drugs or surgery? Yeah. I mean, I would definitely say I regret the, uh, you know, surgery that I had after a skateboarding accident for sure. I think that, you know, I'm not an expert, but I think they went maybe too far to correct something that I think could have repaired itself. Right. So that's an example. Yeah. Cutting unnecessarily. That's a surgery. And, you know, luckily there can be repair done from that. And the same thing can be done for drugs. Psychiatric drugs are the worst that I've ever encountered in my practice. You know? Yeah, I was prescribed uh, Lexapro once. And so taking that, I took that for about a month and it just made me feel really out of body and even not present. So I stopped taking it. That's good. That was just a month. Imagine if that was just like 
you know, more like closer to three decades, you know, like that kind of thing. And then, you know, it produces this kind of shutting down thing. So I will not downplay this one. The entire book, Disciplined Minds by Jeff Schmidt, not just you could go on archive.org and acquire it, you know, because archive.org has a lot of free books out there. But you can also go to unwelcomeguests.net. The entire book is an audiobook too, for free. And it will show what I'm describing, that the system of training that me and my colleagues went through is destructive to the curious and courageous and humble and flexible nature that was in us when we started, when we wanted to help people. And many of us, of course, had our own health problems. We wanted, we were already getting help from the situation of, you know, for example, I was getting help from chiropractic and acupuncture. So of course I went in to learn that, to learn it more. And I found out I was good at it. These people went into that process with that curiosity, but the system of trying to memorize things that eventually in your clinical practice, you never have to use. So you have you basically have like more than 90% of this stuff that you never, ever, ever have to reuse again after you finally pass your board exams and, and put that package together to apply and acquire your license of whatever it is, the medical degree, in my case, an LAC license of acupuncture. Like, what does that do to a person after you've been through all of that work? And here's what it does for someone like me. Well, I have a little chip on my shoulder, as you could see, like to say, oh, that was painful. That was painful twice. I went through, I went through it twice, you know, as I, as I might've mentioned, but you know, I, I reduced the pain by just changing my, my attitude by focusing on more important things like that. Okay. You know, like you got hurt by a surgery, by a surgeon, but you don't consider keep like, you know, harping on it. I understood that it's part of the dangerous world that we're in. People will hurt you if you don't pay attention as some Latin terms, caveat emptor means buyer beware, you know, do your research buyer, because in the end it all falls on you caveat emptor and also key bono who benefits, you know, the, and I'm talking about the, who benefits from hurting you. And there's a lot of people who benefits from hurting you, but there's not so many people who benefit from helping you. That's why I'm in a cash practice where I don't have actual, you know, like insurances that I have to justify what I'm doing to, you know, some, you know, like many pieces of data points that are irrelevant like that. For the other acupuncturists that didn't survive this intact intellectually, because we're going to get into mental and emotional balance soon, they went through a different way where instead of acknowledging that they were hurt by the system that required them to memorize shit that they never needed to use in their clinical practice. They try to jam these square like rods into the round holes of their mind. And they try to justify that it was good for them, that it was good that they were punished by like this with information. It was good that they're going to try to find a way to use this useless information in their practice. They're going to try to find a way to justify why it was important for them to, you know, like also it was important to, to fail out the people who couldn't memorize and spit stuff out. People mistake my articulate uh, communication ability as if that means I'm intelligent or smarter, but I'm not. I'm actually average intelligence as measured. Okay. I just, I just have been training communication skills for the last 12 years now. 
that's different. That's different than being clever and innovative. I, I often, I'm slow to innovate, unlike my teacher, Rick, who's fast to innovate, you know, like that. There are different types of intelligences. So for the most of my colleagues, I think that they went through a process of trying to ignore it and, and then sometimes to try to justify it, like it was important. I need to be a smart person who can memorize stuff. People who memorize and spit things back out are smart, you know, instead of being like, I would call them very well-trained monkeys, you know, who can, you know, like <laughs> they can actually like go about the process of like, you know, like filling out a workbook and, and like doing things according to the lesser people who are training them essentially. And I, I do mean lesser. I mean, I'm sorry to say like a majority of the people who trained me were like that, where, you know, there, there's that, if you know how to do, you become a master. And if you don't know how to do it, you teach it. You know, <laughs> those, those who can't do it well, they teach like that. And I unfortunately was one of those where I became a professor of acupuncture for a couple of years as I was not swift and easily able to build a practice. Like I would never go back to such a thing to get half of my salary at twice the work and be a professor ever, ever again. Like I'm unhirable now, you know, like you can't hire me. I'm moving on to higher leveraged activities, kind of like you guys, where like my family thinks I'm crazy podcast can be huge money for you over, over time, you know, like that, that's, that's just a beginning point. And I'm in the same boat like that, where not medical advice is going in that direction. I think it's important to understand, like you guys do connect to your friends and family members and try to, you try to bridge that gap with like making a bridge of empathy to people so that it's not like burning bridges, the opposite of that. You know, the, like I started in New York state, so I have a very solid double middle finger coming out of my voice sometimes, you know, that's the intensity. That's the opposite of the laid back people who move here from California, man, just like surfing here is really cool too, you know, but warmer. And I'm, I'm still trying to calm that edge. And right now I'm using my podcast voice. I'm not using my practitioner voice, which is coming up for the client who's going to show up at, at next, you know, after the show here, that's a different kind of thing. When it comes to emotional balancing and, and trying to build a bridge, you guys have had people on the show who kind of go over that, like a way to, to make that connection to people who think and can, who have beliefs that are different. Yeah, I would say we've, we've talked to many different people from all different ranges of their family thinking they're crazy to their family being totally on board, despite them being, you know, in a subject that I, you know, me, my family would think is crazy, hence the name of show but yeah that's that's the idea is you know if this is going to relate to people i want to make this podcast practical useful and fun for them you know and and relate to me on my journey of like getting into all this stuff within the realms of esoteric occult and then alternative health and all the things i've done to improve my life through utilizing organic food taking out chemicals to all different degrees from my diet, whether that's water, toothpaste, or even shampoo, you know, and all the things that come with that. So have we gotten into that specifically? Not quite. I would say Tim Grimes would be one episode. And then David Way was another. David Way is really interesting because he's actually 
a Buddhist monk who was born in California, but went to China Wudang style, which is for people who don't know the less strict of the two, because everyone knows like the Shaolin monks with the orange yes. robes, but the Wudang monks are like the sort of more uh, laid back. They're not like chaste or austere, like the Shaolin monks are. They're more like, you know, into the alternative. And he, his advice was, Hey, just, you know, fo- take your own lead and let those who follow, follow, you know? And if they don't just do your own thing, he was like, I never try to tell my family how to do Taoist stuff because, you know, I just let them be and I'm do my own thing. You know, <laughs> that was kind of paraphrasing to a large degree, but yeah, that was like episode 27 or so 26 of my podcast, somewhere around there. And yeah, David's a really cool guy. Well, I think it's important to consider that very crucial question. What does this other person, just always one person at a time, what is this one other person that I'm having conflict with have as a benefit for my life? Why am I keeping them in my life? What, what's, what are the benefits? Hopefully like a bunch of them, right? And if it's a family member, especially like a mom or dad thing or brother, sister, you know, or, or someone like that, or someone that you see on the regular, like at family gatherings, try to understand that you do have real benefits in the past that you got from being connected to them. That's called your objectives. So I always like think keeping the objectives up in mind, I am keeping connection with this person because, and then like, it's like a kind of a game of connect for, you know, except for like all these different versions, like right here, except for it's like more like connect infinity, you know, where there's a lot of like, there there could be, you know, maybe 10 or 12 major reasons why you'd want someone in your life and, and to keep harmony and keep the connection. And then from there, under that is the harder part. What are the actions that you're going to do to stay connected to them? We're going to get to that in a moment. And then under that, what are the resources that you need in terms of time and skills and patience and habit in order to take those actions, the effective actions to keep connected to that person? So that's part of what is called Getting Things Done Methodology. Another important book, Getting Things Done by David Allen, like that. And you don't have to read the book because just getting things done flowcharts are legion all over the internet that just show the flow chart of how to be more of a productive person in your whatever aspect of your life or you know personal relationship whatever it is so those are three of the five david allen methods just your objectives of why you want to keep the person in your life the actions that are going to keep them there and the resources that you need to effectively take those actions so resources like before the show so it was Tara, you got your name right? Yeah. Yeah, I got it. Okay. <laughs> so before the show, Tara, you, you asked about like, you know, and to go into the, the mental and emotional methodology, the, the balancing methods, balancing mind and heart kind of thing. And that is a thing I get paid to teach to people periodically when I'm not like directly working on the physical health problems that, that I have to do. I, sometimes there's the mental, emotional component behind that and they'll hire me on the side or other people like you guys from a distance will hire me to to give you some skills of actual critical thinking methods 
and then some skills for emotional balancing methods. So I'd love to start with that question. Oh yeah, Mark, do you think of yourself as a critical thinker? I do. Yeah. So then could you lay out the steps of your critical thinking methodology? Well, like, like one, two, three, or yeah. four, five, six. I would say observation, but that's also thought because sometimes it's not always connected to something that I'm observing. Analyzation, process, like I process it into, you know, other things I've seen before after I've analyzed, you know, what it is. And then, yeah, and then maybe like deduction, like kind of how then it fits into the overall scheme of the way I see things. And then maybe even relevance, like whether or not it's relevant to certain things that I'm researching or thinking about at that moment in time. Yes, that would be the, the, my first attempt of a, of a rough scrap, uh, draft outline, my critical thinking process is that. It's a good start. Yeah. I, I, I had some similar methods until, you know, thanks to studying the work of Richard Grove and Gino Detting and Brett Finot and many others, they helped me understand the trivium method of critical thinking, which is a very beautiful and nuanced multi-millennial method. Like we're talking going back to 2,500 years ago plus, you know, so that it's been refined over those years. It's been really added to, and it's very simple. It starts with understanding the, the, the root and base of all things called grammar, general grammar, what you would call collecting data, knowledge. And it's very precisely asking and answering specific who, what, where, when questions and looking for substantial answers to them revolving around whatever it is you're trying to be a critical thinker about. And then, so that's step one, it's, it's knowledge, it's knowledge collection or data collection. And step two is a process called informal logic, which has a couple nuances to it. It's understanding the connections between the data. That's where you're putting the data in formation. That's where you get the word information. It's in a format now. Now the data points are connected. You're connecting the dots. And this involves the trick of knowing about and using the logical fallacies, the informal logical fallacies. So I mentioned on many shows, you can just go right to don'tfallacy.me and learn the logical fallacies as a game. There are 42 of them. He gives you the document, Lebosier's 42 Fallacies. It's a PDF that's out there. But more fun than just going through a, a PDF, you could play the game and start learning about the logical fallacies. If you use those logical fallacies to make a decision, the problem is it's kind of like what you call a virus scanner for your mind. If you use a logical fallacy to make a decision, like the appeal to authority, well, Daryl said so, so therefore it must be true. He sounds smart, so I'm going to do that. That's the appeal to authority and making me the authority in that case. It is just potentially dangerous, potentially tragic. What you want is you want evidence, grammar, step one, knowledge, and then you want to see it played out, you know, to, that has to be like that. Or the appeal to popularity, which I think you guys are savvy to, you know, if everyone's doing it, that's not a good reason. Or if it's always been done that way, the appeal to tradition. 
That's not a good reason. That's a fallacy right there. Now, there are times when people have always done it that way, such as house building or such as the methods that I use here in my clinic. A lot of the methods have been done for a long time. It has been practiced like that. I'm thankfully, I don't have to reinvent the wheel, you know, and innovation's great, but there are times when, you know, like that, it can be like that. So knowing the logical fallacies is like a virus scanner for your mind. That's why on the School Sucks podcast, there is a series called Logic Saves Lives. And this is years before COVID came out. And now we're seeing how logic does save people's lives. People are going to the base grammar of understanding what is COVID? Who actually made these claims? You know, what is the evidence? Where is the evidence? Where can I look at that? You know, and like, when did this stuff come out? When were certain patents on certain genomes filed? When were certain patents filed like that? Like who, what, where, when questions can be applied. And then you, you actually have the logical fallacies to see, is there an appeal to authorities? Are, are there all these other, you know, various logical fallacies being employed? They are like little flags, not a given, not an absolute, but a flag to say, hey, wait, whoa, you might be going down the wrong road here. The step three of critical thinking in the trivia method is to create or find practical applications. You're creating an experiment to designate whether something is applicable. Yeah, yes or no, like that, or, or now or later, this kind of thing like that. Is Bitcoin going up now? Yes, it is. It, you know, wh what's going on right now? You know, like that. Uh, what's going on soon? What's likely to happen? You're coming up with ex like explanations like that. It's called wisdom if it creates a predictable and desirable result. If it does not create a predictable and desirable result, it's not wisdom. And therefore, it is not that third part, which is, it's also called rhetoric or actually classical rhetoric. So those were the ancient methods that were refined over years and years, we're talking more than 2,500 years to perfect a method of critical thinking. It's part of what's called the great conversation. It goes back that long, like back to the ancient Greeks even. And probably before, if I could go back to, you know, Egypt and before that to Samaria, these methods of, of, of balancing the mind. So when people would say, well, you know, you sound like you're two in your head, you know, like that. That might be true, but it also might refer to, I can't follow you. Or it might refer to other things like, I'm not efficient with my thinking. You sound like you're efficient with your thinking, but I can't even follow you because you're going too fast for me. I need to listen to the show twice or three times. I'm one of those guys who has to listen to shows twice or three times to really catch the nuances of everything like that. That's why I'm slow to read books because I go through them twice plus, you know, usually. Yeah. Yeah. You too. I know. I'm always amazed at people who've got like eat up like 14 books a year plus like that. Well, I'm like my, my problem, if, if you can call it that, I think it's a good thing, but I buy so many books with that, you know, process. It is hard to keep up because I'm always like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll read this. And you know, 10 books later, I'm like, okay, I haven't started this one yet, but yeah, actually just got to reading today. I got through like three or four chapters. I'm pretty proud of myself, but yeah, I, I have that same method. And I do want to tell people, like, if you do listen to these podcasts three or four times, like, good for you. I think that's just dedication. That's something I've done with 
certain podcasts many times. And now it's almost like in my mind, in a way that's subconscious, you know, it's different. It's a different type of learning than learning from reading. It's interesting. It's like learning new moves. Like if you've ever studied something like a martial arts or Qigong or Tai Chi, your yeah. body is now burning new pathways in your physical body, so-called in the neurons in, in your, in your brain, but definitely within the energetic structure of what your consciousness is made out of. I, I theorize, since I don't have like the Daryl Institute, I theorize that consciousness exists kind of like an electromagnetic cloud around the body, but interpenetrating the body and potentially like interfacing directly at possibly the pineal gland. Again, I don't have the laboratory to track all of this, but that's like what I've been able to look at so far. So it, it seems like that's how it might work. But when you're building new pathways, you're, you're, you're finding a new way to create your existence like that. So having a method of critical thinking is step one. So then you're in a, you're efficient and it creates a flow where you no longer think about things over and over again. That's a lack of critical thinking. That's inefficient thinking. If you keep having to question something over and over again without coming to resolution, then you're stuck on something. And that I, I deal with that with clients frequently who due to their own situations, you know, being toxified by say psychiatric drugs, and they didn't just take it for a month, they took it for a decade and they're still suffering the effects of that. They're still shaken about it basically. And they don't have the bandwidth to learn the critical thinking I described. But beyond that, they also are emotionally distraught. The emotional component is a different thing. And that's the other part that I teach. Then a, an emotional balancing technique. Do you, guys, do you guys have an emotional balancing technique you could describe to me? Well, actually, I just go out and sit by the water and that's to do the trick or and or in the mornings, so I'll, I'll do like a visualization that helps to stabilize me or when I feel too overwhelmed by my emotions. So it's a method to find balance by actually paying attention to right where you are and putting yourself in a situation like the, like looking at the water, looking at the nature and how no one can decorate quite like nature, you know, like that. It's amazing. It's, it's the best. And that's a good method. But there are many of us who are in a different situation, a concrete jungle, perhaps, or an actual stressful moment right now. So without an actual method that where you don't have the place and time to dissociate, you don't have the time and place to, to change. It could require an actual skill set. Hopefully the skill set practiced over and over becomes a habit. Kind of like those who are amazing as skilled at combat. They are often some of the most peaceful and calm people because real combat is often won by the most calm people. They, you know, what is it called? You know, ultimate fighting championship or, you know, MMA fights, that kind of thing. They do a lot of bluster ahead of time and that's all theater and show before the actual combat. But in the midst of it, 
they are the most calm and collected people because they're going in to do the most dangerous brain damaging potential situations possible, <laughs> you know, getting struck in the head too many times in order to, to, to triumph over that and get to that belt and that, that, that winning point. So you could hopefully what we call retire before you get too much brain damage that that person requires having everything calmed down. So I would, I found this method called nonviolent communication. It was devised by Marshall Rosenberg and, and also known as NVC, nonviolent communication. And it is often taught as a communication method, like where they, the teachers would focus upon your observations of the situation, your core feelings of the situation, the actual qualities that in this lingo, they call them needs, the qualities, the abstract qualities that were creating and inspiring both the thoughts and the feelings. And then finally, as the fourth step to make a request of another person. So it's taught as a communications method. Okay. And that's half of the NBC skills that Marshall Rosenberg has in his book. There are four other important parts of it that most of the teachers do not teach, but there's fully in his book, I make sure to include them in my lessons. And I teach it differently because I start it with you become very quickly aware of the five senses and the relevant thoughts going on. That's quadrant one. You become very adept at identifying the four core feelings going on. Just, you know, you can describe them however you want, but we're talking happiness, sadness, fear, and anger but spectrums between them. So, you know, for example, I am so, I'll actually, I'll walk you through that one at, at the end of this, but like you, you understand, like there's, there's like between mildly satisfied to extremely euphoric and between mildly frustrated to enraged, you know, for either way, I call it anger, you know, between mildly bummed out to full despair, you know, and that's sadness. And between, you know, mildly anxious to full-on terror, and that's called fear, like that. And it's like, so like now you're painting the palette like that. They are, they, so you see like those are gradations, you know. And then you have all four of them, unless you're taking psych drugs, in which case you might have all of them dimmed and you might have none of them. That's why those people like to commit suicide because they no longer have any joy or reason or purpose to be alive. But that's why the, you know, cause it, it doesn't dim like sadness, it will, or anxiety, it will dim all of the emotions at once because you have one major source of emotions. You're seeing me being very emotive right now. And if I had none of it, I would sound like this. And I guess I'm doing another podcast right now. I don't know even why I'm doing this anymore. You know, <laughs> and like I have lots of reasons for living and I have, I have all of the emotions alive in me for a reason. The third quadrant is what I call values. They're abstract qualities that are created by my life. For example, I'm here with you guys because I like connection and I like achievement. There, you see, those are abstract qualities. It's not like like I, I can apply them into the fourth quadrant of practicality. That's, that's actions and strategies. But right now I just identify them connection to you guys. After I connected with you guys back when you were on the lake last time, I was like, all right, I want to be on this show as many times as possible. 
And I want as much harmony between me and you guys as much as possible. And I want, I want some challenge. Like when you ask me challenging questions, I want some achievement to make a good show for you guys that like ends up making the serious Patreon bucks and other merch and everything else like that. Like I want to, to see achievement. I want to see effectiveness and efficiency, you know, like a lot done in a short amount of time. I, I want aesthetics like that. So those are qualities like the aesthetics behind you. Yeah. Like that. That's, that's part of it. Well, and if we could yeah. get to the, the meat of it. And I, I mean, unless there's more on uh, NVC and, and the emotional management, because I think, yeah, grounding, you know, like Tara said, going to nature and, and whether that's Oceanside, we're on Long Island Sound, so yeah. not quite an ocean, but, and there's many rivers and all sorts of mountains and things that we've experienced that have added to that energy. But besides that, you know, if you are in an urban jungle, you know, and you may or may not have experienced that dimming from big pharma, what, what are some maybe more practical things our audience can turn to, to, to bring that joy back that you're describing? Well, I'm going to, I'm going to, that last quadrant is necessary for that purpose. Okay. Cause I gave you three out of the four. That last one is where you come up with a strategy or an action that you take right now that acquires the quality without requiring someone else to do something if possible. A little child asks for help, makes requests. They don't know how to manage their life or their even their emotions sometimes. So they're going to always be making requests. That's why I differ from the way many nonviolent communication teachers will give it out. They keep it as, you know, as needs and requests, quadrant three, quadrant four. And I don't do that. I keep it as knowing the values myself and how am I going to get those qualities? Even if I can't get them from you guys, how am I going to next get them soon? Or how can I give them to myself right now? And that creates, you know, that, that requires some creativity. So to walk it through, say I am in the concrete jungle and I'm stressed. I just literally spaced the entire meeting that I had like just even spilled some coffee on me. And I, I still, you know, I'm seeing, you know, the, they, they wouldn't let me in the store cause I didn't have a mask. You know, I'm, I'm having these several different things happening at once going on right now. And I am far from sitting by the ocean. I am not there. That's not there. Right. I'm there right there in that step one. I acknowledge my thoughts like that spilled the coffee, missed the meeting. I acknowledge that kind of thing. I acknowledge other components of what's going on, the, I, you know, the, the, what, what just happens to me right there, the, like, I couldn't go in the store, like that person, you know, and they barring my entry into the store, like that kind of thing, the whole mask issue. Those are relevant thoughts. I just list them out and be concise about it. I acknowledge the frustration, the anger. I acknowledge that if I was going to be honest, sadness, because I've missed an opportunity like that. I could acknowledge the fear. Are they going to think that I, I'm, I'm a flake because I, I spaced the meeting like that? And I go to my third quadrant. I'm afraid because I, wanted, I want the continuity and connection. Those are qualities. I know like there's a whole list of those qualities. There's, there's like about 10 major headings and there's like tons of actual subheadings, other abstract qualities. 
I know the connection, the effectiveness, the, I know that when, like when, when I, I, I wanted like, you know, basically ease and efficiency, that's not spilling coffee on me. Ease and efficiency is the coffee going into my mouth instead, you know, and cleanliness like that. And now my next step is how do I get like taking a moment just to stop walking in the sidewalk and thinking, how am I next going to get connection or right now? How am I next going to have effectiveness right now? How am I going to next have that? And with skill, you become effective at that. You know what? I'm going to get to go. You guys invited me over to your Long Island place. I'm going to get to go and hang out with you. So I'm just taking a moment to envision the future where I get to hang and chill with you guys. And I'm not trying to work hard, making a good show like right now, but I'm just like kind of relaxed, Daryl. Was just relaxed and just enjoying it. So I'm picturing that vision of me in the future because it's about to happen. Or I picture the time when I did get to chill with you guys and other folks in, in, you know, local area around there where we went off and to see Fort Hero at Montauk, Long Island and consider the Montauk project and stuff. And, you know, like back in the time when we got to hang out and talk about that topic. And that was really fun, you know? So you see how I, I just hypnotized myself I didn't need the forest or ocean or, or nature. I just needed to be effective with myself, whether to do something right now, like doing Qigong moves, for example, whether to do it envisioning the future or envisioning the past on achieving those qualities. And now I, have, now I go back to step one. What are my thoughts now that I've done that exercise? Is it more balanced? Is it better? If not, I've got more work to do. How are my feelings now? And now I feel the, the satisfaction and the, that type of, you know, mild joy of just being satisfied at being effective. Yes. All my quality is being tended to. You see what I'm saying? It becomes a, a, a habit. Yeah. Anchoring your, your emotions in a positive direction and then propelling yourself with that momentum into the reality you want to live. I mean, this is everything that we've set out to do with the synchro mystic exploration of the ever expanding now which is only available on the patreon but that's the idea is like when you learn these tools that you've learned over your many years from the alternative approach of health looking into the totality of the mind body spirit and everything it means to be human and, and have a healthy body i mean a lot of that comes from our mental space and if you're unaware of these metaphysical tools or maybe esoteric tools, because they are hidden from us in traditional society, like you were alluding to. I mean, it, it's, it, I think this has been fundamental for me, but I hope to share that with the listeners. So yeah, I think this is a big, uh, big case for the law of attraction. I mean, not to use that cliche term, but I, I think that's what it is. Would you agree? Yeah, that's it. And as I've learned, winging it, just using intuition is wonderful. Having a gut feeling is wonderful. That's a tool, one tool. Please, my, my, my ask to the audience is consider adding to your toolbox. Don't just have one tool. Unless you're knocking it out of the park and you literally have the best life possible only using one tool, I, which I'm going to tend to question. But, you know, there are people who that's their trip and they don't want this Daryl, I hate this. You know, you got all this. You're like such a method man. You got all these steps and methods and stuff like this three-step critical thinking, this four-step 
mental balancing technique called quadrant work that you call it based on nonviolent communication. I don't like all these steps, Daryl. I just, I just use my gut feeling. Well, how's that working for you? Get more tools. And once you have the tools, make the tools habits. So the person who's out there, no matter where you are, you have more methods to, to draw upon to get that balance. So getting back to my family thinks I'm crazy for a moment and the objectives of creating harmony, what I like to call building a bridge of empathy from me to them. I know why I want to be connected to them because I know why they're valuable in my life. And I can even speculate why I'm valuable in their life. So it's a mutual situation. I want to keep the bridge open. To keep that bridge open, I'm balancing myself. My mind is balanced. I'm not having an open loop where I keep thinking the same thing. God damn it. He, my, my dad just demanded this morning for me to get a vaccine, you know, the vaccine, as we know. And I, you know, I felt that, you know, anger come up like that. But I keep in mind that I have reasons to stay connected with this guy. And he has reasons to stay connected with me. So I'm keeping that one in mind. And I don't no longer have an open loop. I'll be like, I can manage this one. You know, like I can handle that type of demand that was on me. And I'm keeping in mind that like I balanced my emotional terrain. Like I, I thought the thought of, I just got a demand from my dad and the thought, He's really closed-minded. He's, he's really thinking like an old man, and he is soon to be 85. He's truly an old man, you know? And so <laughs> there's that. And I have the frustration. Like, I, I want to be like him to understand me. I want, I want understanding and clarity. Like, I feel you guys get me, but I don't feel like he gets me. You guys understand more of what I do for my job than he does. You guys, under, you know, like, I wish he understood me. I, I, I want clarity and I want understanding and connection. So how am I next going to get clarity and understanding with someone else? Not necessarily him. And like, you know, like that, that type of thing. And I'm getting it right now with you guys. And then how can I, you know, consider plans of maybe making it more connected and understanding with him? And that's my final step of the four quadrants like that. So I know where I'm at. And then now, I, now flipping it around, where's he at? What's it like to be Peter Becker, for example? What is it like to be that guy who grew up in the Bronx, you know, and, you know, literally, you know, had to fight on the street? What is it like to be that guy right now as an 85-year-old man? What's he feeling emotionally when he sees my Facebook posts? Oh, my God. Okay. I can imagine the, 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 the frustration and sadness because I'm, I'm pretty outrageous with what I post there sometimes just to him probably and he wants that type of understanding and he wants a shared you know like that type of shared experience called you know connection connection around that group think like that he loves that kind of thing but he wants a, a shared understanding that's a, an abstract quality like that and he certainly uh, wants clarity and focus and effectiveness he wants safety and security that's the number one reason he asked for me to get that vaccine and so now I understand him a little bit better. And I saw his strategy was to just post that, you know, like right there on, on my timeline like that. And that was his strategy. So now I just, I no longer have that open loop of being angry at him. I'm seeing him as a human, having a human experience. I'm seeing that he's got real values that he wants, that third quadrant. 
I'm seeing he has real thoughts and he's taking real strategies that he thinks are going to be effective. He's just like me. And now I've, I've balanced myself and now I can find a better way to build a bridge to him. I also have identified potential splinters in the mind, like topics that, like if you've ever heard of this ancient game called Minesweeper, where you're like clicking on places and you find out, oh, there's a bomb there and you start planting flags around a bomb. Yeah, those bombs are certain topics of discussion to bring up with certain people. For you guys, Mark and Tara, I don't think there's a topic I could bring up that would be like a bomb where, ooh, don't bring that topic up. These guys will just like start to bite my head off or something, or you'll withdraw and, and run away. The, the three Fs of what I called fight, flight, or freeze. You know, the three reactive situations like that. But for someone like my dad, there are those places. So I have to be really careful around those flagged topics of conversation and keeping in mind my objective to, to maintain and enhance the connection to keep in mind what are the actions that are going to maintain that connection and what resources of my own balance of my mind and my resources of my patience and my time, you know, my awareness, what resources do I need to take those actions to get there? That's what I wanted to give to you guys and the audience. Right on. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that. I think that's a great place to begin for some people, or even if people are already on their way and have a couple of tools, it's another tool to add to their belt. And I think, yeah, there's never enough tools as long as they serve you. I think Bruce Lee, you know, cause as you mentioned, martial arts being a kind of uh tipping off point to one of your point, larger points that you were making about, you know, having a certain practice, you know, I've studied martial arts as a big part of my early life when I was a teenager and Bruce Lee, his whole model was take what works for you from any style. You know, he didn't limit himself to just Wing Chun, even though that was, you know, one of the first things he learned, he went and then pushed that further and implemented styles, you know, from all different parts of the world that normal folks from his area weren't taking on. And I think that just as a model for all things we can do in life is, is really cool to be able to take a universal approach and find what works for you. And, and yeah, thank you, Daryl, for adding another tool to our toolkit. I like to just call it quadrant work cool. for how I own my brand it myself, because I've, I've changed it from what nonviolent communication is traditionally taught. You know, that's yeah. how I teach it like that, you know, four quadrants, that's I it. But there's, you know, there's more. Tara had recently been uh, showing me this sort of four quadrants of the mind. You have the left brain and the right brain. And then I think it was like North and South or maybe like female and, and male. Uh, but am I wrong? No, it was. It was divided by the tarot. So it was masculine and feminine, and then the king and queen and prince and princess mm. representing the different, yeah, quadrants of nice. mind. Yeah. And like the major arcana as well from the tarot. But yeah, it was, you know, synchronistic. Now we're talking about quadrant theory. And when we had planned that, our, this podcast, you know, Tara and I had been talking about this four quadrant model that relates to her spirit science tarot deck, but also really spirit science. I think you would vibe with it if you hadn't already seen it on YouTube. It's pretty, 
prolific. They've been around for a while, but they do a great job of encompassing all of these topics into these fun little cartoons that are super informative. But he, uh, he has this great tarot card deck that pretty much, you know, I have played with tarot card decks, not as a practitioner, but as like a receiver of information for a long time, uh, you know, and it's, it's definitely added to my life immensely. Are you grabbing the book right now? The book of patch. Yeah. But yeah, so I, I'm just, you know, I like to point out the, uh, the synchronicities, but I wonder, you know, how far into that realm does your regular practice go? I mean, would, you know, your father <laughs> see what you do as like kind of out there metaphysical stuff Would the average person see it as that from your experience, there's the uh, quadrant we're discussing. Yeah, definitely. Uh, put that in the show notes if you can. But For sure. like that's 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 really awesome. I because I want to see it honestly. I I'm not Such fully versed in what you got there in the book, but I I did get trained in a lot of different esoteric things because that's connected to everyone who's ever trained with what's known as clinical kinesiology, a type of chiropractic training that I, I covered in the last show had to touch upon these subtle energetic phenomenon, including even the potential ap applications of what happened in alternate and past lives, or basically other existences that are connected to the energetic realm of right now. Um, largely referring to my dad, I don't, I think he's just plain old not aware of any of like this part, just like he's not going to listen to this part of the podcast, or in general, I'm not sure any of my podcasts that I've been on or that I record myself, Maybe. Uh, you know, it's just, it's just not going to happen right now. I'm, I'm just glad that he'll show up on a zoom call with me and, and a phone call too, you know, so the bridges are open, but not that many bridges, not like a curiosity is not there yet to study who, who I am and where I'm coming from. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. It might never be that way with me and him on in this plane of existence, you know, but the invitation is there and I don't have a deep seated need for him specifically to join me there. I have a more, more of a, I have a hunger to get more of the younger folks like you guys to join me to where I'm at, you know, like that kind of thing. I am very agnostic. That means I, 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 I embrace uncertainty. I'm very uncertain. When we're discussing things, I am very confident when I'm about to take action because I have used all of the best of my ability to understand something. But after I've taken action and I have time to consider it, just like say after I, I worked with a client this morning before you guys got here, I definitely question how I did today. And I will, I, I keep that in mind. And then, but, but I, I finished the questioning at some point and I'm good with that. That's part of a balancing method. So I, I like the agnostic, uncertain approach. It's the opposite of being fixed and firm in my beliefs. I used to be like that. I used to like say, well, now I know the truth. Now I really have got it. You know, now I see the real deal. Now I understand that I was, you know, really abducted and actually inserted into the Montauk project as, as one of those children or something like that, you know, that was a psychic uh, named Stuart Swordlow made that claim of me. And maybe that's true and maybe it's not. I, I have an open-minded perspective have, to it. Do you have yeah. any um, evidence? 
time? Like, is there time in your life where you can't account for like maybe going to a, a summer camp program or something when you're a teenager and maybe, you know, ended up in some dark room and then got like the men in black flash and forgot your whole summer? I have nothing like that. The closest I have is to dreams of extremely bright lights coming in through the window on the side of the house that, you know, is the woods, you know, which is not where you can have like a headlights coming through, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, also it was like, we're talking multiple stories up. We're almost at tree level. So, you know, not like, but, but there's no proof or evidence that I have of that. I like to, I have a feline perspective on that. If I don't know if you guys have a cat or something, but so my cats that I've owned and the one I've got now don't fret about the kittens they've had in the past or the, the boyfriends that they have had in the past or something like that. They're in the moment now, like almost all the sane animals are sane because they're very in the moment. They don't fret about what might have been or might, you know, like might be, they consider what actually is as their five senses take it in and what their core desire is. They don't fret about what gives them meaning and purpose to their life. That's quadrant three, meaning and purpose to the life. It's very important. So they instead, they already have meaning and purpose, survive, eat, reproduce, you know, tend to the body, clean that fur like that. You know, those are the, like, they don't have to like review the, the, the reasons for why they're alive. Meaning and purpose is, is established. And the present moment attitude that monks over there around the world would work for like decades to establish, they already have. I try to keep that one in mind like that. I don't fret about if I was or wasn't abducted. That That's a fascinating idea. And when it becomes more relevant, I'll consider it relevant. Like show me the actual implants behind my eyes nipples and belly button that were alleged to be inside me transdimensionally phasing out of existence that are kind of hard to uh, substantiate or with evidence you know <laughs> you know i don't have evidence of that so i don't know but until i do have evidence it's like an interesting story and it's instructive to me when i was firm on my conclusions that's where i fretted about stuff you know but now i'm flexible on it yeah, I would, I would say, you know, what you're talking about with the past, present, future, that's something I've thought about for years. It's like, especially as it pertains to how you laid out the degrees of our emotions, because I've always thought of like fear is you and anxiety. They're like, you know, thinking in the future too much, whereas you know, sadness and regret and those kind of things are maybe thinking in the past too much. Whereas when you're in the present, you make room for joy and, and abundance and all those other emotions that you can really sink into and have that momentum shifting effect on your life that we were describing earlier. I want to refer back to critical thinking skills 101, which I, I was going over with you guys. What you described as fretting of like about the future and over concerning oneself with the past refers to having no objective with the actions. So if the action is to think of the future, there needs to be an end point and an objective. Having no objective means you just never end. 
You just keep thinking and fretting about the future or thinking about the past. To what end? You need to have an actual purpose and, 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 and an, an actual goal that is achievable. There's an acronym that I learned in my trainings, uh, what's called the Mankind Project. It's a small group of guys, about 80,000 of us around the world in about 18 different countries who train mental and emotional skill sets to become more self-aware. And the acronym is called SMART. So when taking action, I keep in mind, can I make a SMART goal? That stands for simple, a simple goal. I'm going to review the future. And what, where should I live in Hawaii or should I move to Arizona or Texas or a more potentially freed up state? You know, is it measurable? How long am I going to think about this topic? Is it achievable? Am I able to think about this topic or am I too emotionally upset or am I too busy to think about it right now? Because I have a list of things I got to send Bob an email with. My, my biography of what I wanted for the podcast. And I got another text to a client. Am I, you know, is it achievable for me now? When is it achievable for me? Is it relevant? And is it relevant to my goals? If my goal is I'm reviewing the future, you know, like plans as relevant to giving me meaning and purpose or safety and security, third quadrant qualities. How is it relevant to me? Time bound. In my schedule at 5.30 when I'm done with work, do I have time then? Do I have the emotional and physical and, and emotional mental area, the, the resources to go over it then? I'm going to put it in my calendar. Here's when I'm going to consider these ideas. And once I've made that, I put it in the calendar. That's when I'm going to do all that work. I have an objective in mind. People who are so-called two in their head are inefficiently in their head. They have no objective. They have no set actions that they've laid out. They do not possess the resources to take those actions effectively. Thus, they cannot achieve an undefined goal. And that's why they seem distraught or somewhat crazed or unhinged. You'll find that they use an excess of words when less words could do. Or they might not even have much to say at all because they're just, everything is like a, a logjam of thoughts coming out of them. I've seen this too many times like that. Without skill sets that I've described to you, I was out of control, Daryl. I didn't have smart goals. It was not simple. It was not measurable. It was for my skill sets without the resources of, of habits and skills, it was not achievable. It was not relevant to what gives me meaning and purpose or achieves my goals. It was not time-bound, meaning I didn't even set a time for when I'm going to try to engage in that activity, you know, to be like that. So without it being smart, it becomes the opposite. It's dumb, you know, like that. Like it's, it's just, it's, it's the opposite. It's not simple. It's complicated. It's not measurable. It's nebulous or, you know, like I say to people when they describe something, to me that doesn't tell me a damn thing. And I'm like, well, could you be more vague about that? Because, oh my God, you know, that was very vague, but could you be even more vague about it? Just can you just allude to it in such a way as I even understand it less, you know, <laughs> you know, is, is it, you know, again, is it, uh, is it actionable? Is it, is it achievable? Is it relevant? Is it relevant to the goals in mind? 
Oh my God, you don't even, you didn't even define the goals. Is it time bound? You didn't even define when you're going to go do the thing. You see what I mean? Tools are handles. Okay. Tools are handles that you put on the boxes of information in your mind, the boxes of emotional components in your heart. They allow you to move them better. You've moved, you, you've moved dwellings before, right? You've actually like had to put things in boxes and stuff. Right. Now imagine if all those boxes were like the kick-ass amazing boxes, the ones that actually have built-in handles on them, you know, like my favorite kind of boxes, like, oh my God, it's like not only a beefy, beefy like cardboard box, but it's the ones that have the handles built into them like that, you know? Now those ones move easier. The other ones where you have to find your fingers all the way underneath it and carry it just so, not as easy. Tools are handles to put on the boxes. Labeling the box is a handle that's identification. It creates the quality called understanding and clarity, you know, like that kitchen stuff on the box, as I've said in many shows, oh, that means it goes in the kitchen when you get to the place, you know, that's kitchen stuff. You could be more specific. That's the junk drawer in the kitchen. Okay. That's that drawer in the kitchen. Oh, those are, that's the cutlery silverware. That's the, that part of the kitchen. Like it's identification for that purpose. I know it sounds like complicated to people who have no skills, but my, my, my plea to people watching and listening is just to say a few tools help, you know, you do not have to reinvent the wheel. All of what I've given you was invented by other people. And I know that, you know, like the, the, the topics, the topic I didn't tell you about was basically four purple, perfect ways to mess up and burn the bridge of empathy between you and another person and how to translate those four ways to create connection to the other person. And the other part was of course, like actual detoxification methods since we, we touched on that earlier, the, or whatever you want, which, which one do you think? Well, you know, I do think that people are super interested and I'm interested in germ theory versus terrain. Oh yeah. That and I think, you know, terrain theory is something that just seems to be more in harmony with everything else I've learned about our world. And, you know, from my familial experience, my grandparents, they grew up in rural Canada. You know, they ate food that came from farmer's markets. They ran around, you know, barefoot in the dirt and they were fine. You know, it wasn't until my grandmother went to this, like, you know, freezing cold girl's school out on the middle of, you know, almost all the way near Prince Edward Island. If anyone knows Canada like that, you know, it's, it's up there in the North Atlantic, you know, so she got pneumonia. But other than that, I mean, they lived their whole lives, very healthy. And, you know, obviously coming to America, that changed things, you know, my Pepe loved uh, McDonald's, you know, so that didn't last, but I think, you know, the, the reason why they both lived into their nineties was because of that foundation of health that they got out there, you know, living in a more rural situation, less modern amenities, less, uh, cause I, my whole childhood, it was Purell and all that kind of stuff. Not that my mother or father were giving that to me, but I remember that being in school, you know, they were pushing that. And I always thought to myself, like, why, you know, what's wrong with what, you know, 
dirt. There's nothing wrong with dirt. But anyways, that's a long-winded, you know, sort of anecdote for saying that I've always kind of thought in terms of terrain theory, I just didn't know how to define it. It actually, the terrain model of health and disease is far older than the germ theory of health and disease. So it's been worked on and refined in the same way as critical thinking skills have been worked on and refined for a very long time. And in the same way as emotional balancing skills have been worked on and refined. So it started with people just understanding the connection of the, you are what you eat, like Paracelsus and, and Hippocrates. Then the future, the doctor will be basically helping the patient by guiding them with proper nutrition and food. And that will be the medicine for them like that. What actually is composing of them. So it's been a very, very old concept of what goes into the person is incredibly critical to their terrain. But over time, it became more nuanced. And now they understand that some foods will increase the acid nature of parts of the tissues and body that need to be alkaline and vice versa. Some tissues need to be acid and to turn them alkaline, like I'm talking about the stomach, is going to diminish the ability of the body to absorb and you know, create nutrients. So there's, there's that, understanding like the components of what, what creates health. The many, many layers of toxins were always a problem throughout human history for thousands of years. But 100 plus years ago, special types of toxins were released and invented, essentially. New types of toxins. So I always like to bring up the book, The 100-Year Lie by uh, Randall Fitzgerald. And that one covers the types of toxins that we're all presently dealing with and exposed to. Understanding that those toxins exist means that now you can take steps to reduce exposure to them. So you're stopping, like you're eating organic food. Now you're taking in less of the various pesticides and herbicides and other toxicants that are on certain foods, you know, know, chemically grown type foods. Instead, you're taking in more naturally, organically, and sometimes even cleanly wildcrafted foods like that. So you're reducing, that's called subtraction in, in my clinic here. I call that, you know, but there's, we have two things, addition and subtraction. It's all we do. It's two things. You try to reduce the toxins, reduce them coming in, reduce the body from making them. That's terrain theory. You have a chance to increase what's needed. So you have deficiencies of vital nutrients that'll create problems. Everyone knows about scurvy is a deficiency of vitamin C. It is increased by, you know, like the, the, that those deficiency syndromes can be treated by just increasing the nutrients of vitamin C and associated nutrients connected to that bioflavonoids, et cetera, you know, helps to have like the whole spectrum that goes along with each one of them, but simplicity will help, you know? So you increase the things that need to be there and you decrease the things that don't need to be there. Terrain theory in a nutshell, all of health is caused by the things that should never be there are there. Endotoxins that the body is making, toxins inside of the body that aren't being removed properly. And exotoxins, toxins that are coming in from outside. We're talking food, skin, air, and water, like that kind of thing. And they should never have been there and try to reduce exposure and then try to, you know, reduce the toxins that have came in. And there are ways to do that. 
addition and subtraction like that. And that's kind of terrain theory in a nutshell. It's just understanding that like each person is completely unique. Every situation for creating health is custom built. It is, it is a bespoke is the word in, in like British language. It is custom built for each person. It is not a one size fits all. I know it would be wonderful to think in monopoly terms, but it's a plurality term, a plural of many methods so that you have many methods to, to address these things. Then there's terrain. So then there's germ theory, the germ theory of disease still listed as germ theory of disease in Wikipedia. Widely accepted, according to Wikipedia, not widely accepted, is, is the, the reigning theory that was promoted, again, by the Rockefeller Medicine Institute, you know, like the whole institution of those people, the, the folks who funded all of the doctors, all of big pharma and their conglomerates in insurance and banking that go behind all of them. And they own the five major media companies. So they're all walking in lockstep to go say the same thing. A pathogen comes from outside. You know, at first it used to be bacteria. Then they could actually find bacteria, you know, under scopes. And then they came up with a theory of viruses before they even had electron microscopy. So they didn't even see viruses, but they theorized viruses. And then they came up with scanning electron microscopes and TEM scopes. And that's when they actually started labeling particles as viruses. They made the claim that the bacteria or virus, or in some cases, a, a type of yeast or mold, or, uh, you know, the only relevant one, actually, parasites would come in from outside and the body would succumb to the damages, the tissues would be damaged, cells would be damaged, and, and that these would be transmissible from person to person, from the environment to the person, and that includes from other people to the person. So the immune system responds with this antibody system where these small particles identify the offending toxin or the offend, actually not toxin, but the offending pathogen. And that's where it responds to the pathogen by initiating, you know, white blood cells to go ahead and attack the invader and other, other cells of the immune system, so-called. That's the theory like that. And if the immune system is strong, it handles it all on its own, especially by the mechanism of raising the internal temperature to cook them out of fever or to swell the area with more, more blood to the area, swelling and redness like that to create, like you'll have more of these cleaning cells of the body by increasing blood supply to those areas. And that is useful, except if too much swelling happens, such as a dangerous places like the brain or the heart or the other critical organs, the liver and on and on down to the least important organ of all, the skin. The skin, the least important organ. Until you damage more than 40%, least important organ. You know, once you go past 40%, now it's life critical for most people like that. But up until then, that's why you have all these skin conditions because the body has a way to push it. The, they push the problems out to the least important organ away from the most critical organs. You know, those are the critical ones. You get three minutes without breathing, you know. You, you don't even get that much without heart beating, of course. And you, without the brain working, you get a full flat line. But, you know, it, it goes on and on from there. Well, that's why the, the body knows how to rank the, 
the everything of how it does everything like that. So germ theory is looking at it through the lens of people have an immune system that is highly based on antibodies. Terrain theory goes the other way. The antibody reactions is a very, very small amount of what, how the body reacts to things. The natural mechanisms that people in practicing other types of holistic healthcare that I don't necessarily fully use. Uh, I'm talking German, Germanic new medicine. You could look that one up and another very, very cleansing, very body focused medicines that do not rely upon dishing out medicines like I do. And they don't rely on dishing out treatments like I do. They rely on the body's natural mechanisms of making mucus and phlegm to remove toxins and sweating to remove toxins. You know, that's I'd like that, like that kind of thing. And the natural mechanisms of fasting to remove toxins or just eating very simplistic foods like only fruit to remove toxins and just to really be pure about the environment as best as possible to allow the body, whether with a fever or swelling or anything to do whatever it needs to do. And I'm all good with that until something is critical, like, well, swelling is now happening in the brain and that's called encephalitis and that's like mission critical. That's life endangering. So I, I don't let things go that far, you know, in, in my own life and with my clients. But for some of these people, they will go all the way like that. In a nutshell, I mean, what the money goes behind the germ theory, because it's made trillions of dollars at this point, it made especially a lot over the last couple of years to promote the idea that you are helpless against this pathogen and you require either these medicines, you know, like that you take orally on your own, and you can certainly find your own sources of hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin or all the other like highly publicized medicines or the lesser known medicines. Like I'm talking about white pine needle tea and apple pectin and other things that are more holistically available and, and usable for that to reduce and remove the toxin kind of load on the body. The, I think I went over the, the general, you get the general gist of it. If you sell people on the idea that the terrain doesn't matter, what matters is the germ, then they're helpless to just acquire the whatever medicine, including, of course, the experimental injectables being called vaccines nowadays, mRNA, potentially, you know, the usual plus new types of damage type of vaccines going on called vaccines. And that's one of the ways that have made a lot of people a lot of money just to get people to take these drugs because they're presuming that without them, they're lost, that the germ is stronger than they are and that the germ is coming from outside. The reality that I've had to acknowledge as being wrong about this for 22 years of my practice is that viruses, as far as I can tell, there's no evidence that viruses are other than cell waste, which is why they have no organelles inside of them. All they have is genetic material and toxic substances wrapped in a cell membrane made by whatever cell it is made out of. So think of them as bags of garbage. And the bag part is the cell membrane. Cells will wrap up toxins and waste in these cell membrane pieces of themselves, just like people who live in a dirty apartment building will wrap up their McDonald's and other takeout food in a plastic bag. And then it all gets clumped up outside of their place. It's the same function like that. 
So if you were looking from on high, you'd say, oh my God, look at all these bags of garbage that causes these ghettos and poverty. If Because they don't have scanning electron microscopes that show video. They only have scanning electron microscopes that show cut, sliced, and dyed frozen events like a photo, a picture. It's very similar to if all you had was photos and not video, and you had fires, houses on fire, and all the fire engines and ambulance around it, and every time you see that picture, you'd be thinking, those are the ones who caused the fire, obviously, because all you had was a still picture. You didn't have the picture of what happened before, during, and after. So for the most part, as best I'm able to tell, and I've audited this for the last 18 plus months, what are called these viruses are cell waste, exosomes, cell waste, basically. They're, they're waste coming from cells. They are toxins or cell waste wrapped up in a cell membrane. They have no reproductive or other life functioning things like a bacteria. That's a living organism. There's several pounds of bacteria in each of us. Those are alive. They are bigger than, than a virus, so you can see them on video. They have them on video. You can see them and move them around. You can see them reproduce. You can see them do stuff. And if you really look closely, what they do is they're there to eat dead cells and cell waste. They're there to clean stuff up, and they are endemic. They're inside the body. Strep, streptococcus, and staph, and staphylococcus, and E. coli, these are all in the body. They're there for a reason to clean stuff up. They're not coming from the outside. They're already there like that. And the same thing for the yeasts that serve their own function that are extremely good often at handling certain specific 20th and 21st century toxins. I'm talking about you, mercury and lead. Yeasts are really good at that. So in my practice, if you were to kill all the yeasts out of someone, but they have a bunch of silver mercury fillings in their mouth that are constantly off-gassing this organic mercury going on, the toxins from that are not not being handled by them. So they will have a detoxing, they will have like a suddenly they'll be toxified and that can, help, that can hurt their health in a big way. The step one is you need to reduce the toxin load. Step two, if the yeast is overgrowing, you need to make the body more alkaline that will restore the balance of it. They need the candida in their body. They just need it in the right places and in the right amounts. They need the bacterias in their body but they need them in the right amounts in the right places. And so the terrain theory looks at these pathogens as helpers, helper cells that are in there for a good reason. And the germ theory looks at them as invaders coming from the outside that are causing the destruction. Right. And, and in nature, I mean, we look around us and we see all sorts of different organisms, big and small, and how they interact with each other might seem violent. But when you take a step back and you look at the bigger picture, you see that, yeah, the cougar does have to kill a few deer, but that ultimately saves all the other critters that eat the same things that the deer do. Because the deer, you know, if they get too overpopulated, well, then all the foliage gets eaten by them. And then all the other you know, creatures aren't able to eat it. So there's a balancing effect. And that's just one example from our backyard where we can see, you know, bears and cougars and certain predators that, and humans that kill deer, you know, are balancing nature in that way. But why would our bodies be any different? We, you know, apply these 
thinks from the microcosm, macrocosm, you know, that's one of the seven hermetic principles that have really changed my life. And I think, you know, when you take that approach, which is where you, when you really look at medicine, you know, the roots of it comes from alchemy, which is all based on alchemic, you know, the seven hermetic laws, you know, Hermes, you know, these symbols are there and folks, we're getting into it on the Patreon. But Daryl, oh, yeah. it's been, you know, quite a long episode. I think one of our longest so far, but you deserve it. This is awesome. I appreciate the information you've shared with us. Obviously the quadrant work is something that you normally charge uh, people for. So is there a site that people can get in touch with you if they want to book you as, you know, someone that they can receive therapy from, or is that not how that works? I don't want to like, you know, get you in trouble, but. Yeah. Like, I mean, on a show like this, that's cool. Yeah. Thank you. Um, on a show like this, I definitely give out my private email, voluntaryvisions at gmail.com. I, I kind of, I like to hide behind that one. So only select people find me that way, mm -hmm. you know, Un unlike say, if it was a Daryl Becker domain, which I keep extremely hidden and I don't have an email for that. And if you like my work and you just want to, you're not sure about hiring me as of yet, you're not ready for sending me a direct email to voluntaryvisions at gmail.com, then Check me out at notmedicaladvice.co. You can check me out. Uh, I've got shows up on BitChute and YouTube. Thanks to this show and Tinfoil Hat Show and others, I've been, I've been growing over there on the YouTubes like that. And I, I really appreciate that. I've got like, I got like five more shows to be dropping over there soon. It's in general, yeah, when you want to work with me on these topics, I love to do a discovery call. I give people like a free 30 minutes just to find out who you are and if we're right to work with each other or not, you know, and if you want to have what I have or not, and I can, can show you the graphics. I like to have the skills out there for free. I'm, I'm happy to have all of that. I don't want the stuff hidden behind a paywall. I, I look at it that way, kind of like when, when my book is published, it's certainly for damn sure going to also be as a free PDF and other versions in EPUB on archive.org for sure. But for people who will want the paper version of Not Medical Advice by Daryl Becker coming out uh, probably early next year, then that'll be out there. You, if you want to prepay for a copy, you can certainly you know email me like that because I, I will sell it ahead of time like that. And I, I encourage people just to you know like keep doing your own work. What I give people, what the purpose of Not Medical Advice, the book is going to be is, and that I'm working on is, I help people find professionals like myself so that you can build an effective healthcare team. So if you're not like you guys and me, you say, if you're someone who's listening and watching right now and you have big health problems an injury that's never healed illnesses that not only didn't go away, but you got worse when you trusted medical doctors and you, you now just, you don't even know what to do. And, and you, you, you have no idea what to do. You've trusted everyone, the wrong people, basically. Well, I help you find out how do you research and find the actual healthcare team you can work with. So we're talking like a specific kind of chiropractor who will test everything like I do and find what's biocompatible, what is actually compatible on the energetic level, on the chemistry level, on the structural level with your body. And that's like step one. And then finding maybe a scientist, like a naturopathic doctor to run a lot of labs and give you access to a huge pharmacopoeia of incredibly effective natural medicines 
that the chiropractor might not be able to have in their practice. But sometimes it's one-stop shopping and that chiro has that stuff too. And they run labs too. And then maybe a wizard, that's an acupuncturist like me, someone who can move the subtle energies of the body in just such a way to help restore the balance, maybe even some mental emotional skills that I was giving you guys as well, you know, someone who does that kind of stuff. And finally, the insider to help you find and interview and actually start working with a medical doctor, an MD that's on your side. Do not discount the MDs. They have power. They can prescribe all the medicines, the strong medicines and the diagnostic tools, you know, like heavy duty diagnostics. They can be an advocate to, to do a you know, certain lab tests. I'm talking about like allergy tests to show, well, obviously you are definitely someone who would like die if you ever got this vaccine with these ingredients. So here's your doctor's notes. And now you don't have to do that. And they're there. They've got hospital visitation rights. They're the insider in the medical mafia. They have the visitation rights to show up and advocate on your behalf if you're in medical trouble. So you see what I mean? Building a medical team is powerful. And I have a book coming out to show you how to do that. Wow. All right. Well, I'm excited to see when that comes out. Obviously, you said early next year, but Daryl Becker, this has been fantastic. Our first conversation, Lakeside, and now part two here in the studio. And you're in beautiful Hawaii yourself. And what's the name of uh, the chicken that was chiming in uh, <laughs> throughout our conversation here? Because I think they deserve some credit in the episode description. See, I have so many wild chickens that it would be... It's just not on me nowadays. Like I, I, when I moved here in 2016, I started naming them. You know, they all had personalities and I watched them give birth to clutches of little chicks and stuff and see who got to survive. This is multiple generations later. I, I definitely have stopped naming them. <laughs> you can't, you can't um, keep track. They are, I mean, wild chickens, very intelligent beings. A domestic and caged up chickens, I'm not sure about that. I, I give them credit, but still, you know, they're nothing like the intelligence of me and my cat, but I like how they can, they know how to meld with this environment. They roost up in these trees here, the, the, this, this, you know, the guava trees here, banyan tree right here, you know, like all, all over the, they roost, they live, they handle the mongoose who are on, on this Island, you know, like that they handle the, you know, the domestic and wild cats and stuff and dogs that sometimes stray. They, they know how to handle life here on this Island and everything like that. So I'm giving them some credit right now too. Right on. All right. Well, thank you so much, Daryl, for joining us on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. And folks, if you're listening out there, have a great moment wherever you are in the now and be sure to join us on the Patreon. Show us some love and be sure to go show Daryl some love. Check out Not Medical Advice. And that's on YouTube or is it a podcast? I'm not, I wasn't certain about that. I'm going to convert it to a podcast real damn soon, but it is, it's on YouTube. It's on BitChute, notmedicaladvice.co. Right on. All right. Well, thank you so much and take it easy. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to that conversation with Daryl Becker. It was uh, a lot of fun getting into the quadrant work, smart. The hundred year lie and so many other things. Obviously the, uh, terrain theory. Yeah. The yeast thing. I hadn't considered that. 
<laughs> and then terrain theory versus germ theory. I think that's something that a lot of people are interested in lately, especially since what's going on. That offers like totally two perspectives of this, what's going on right now. Totally polarized. Right. Exactly. A visual choice. I, I think, you know, move forward. You see, and you see it very clearly with the person uh, and their choice to whether or not they wear a mask, obviously, you know, aside from those who have to wear it, who are forced to wear it in order to just buy grocery groceries like we almost had to last week, today's Labor Day. You know, Daryl's a cool guy. I've known him for a little while. We first talked uh, back when I first was introduced to Matt Raymer and Content Safe. And yeah, you guys might have heard towards the end there all the places where you can find Daryl's stuff. Well, we hope to have that all on altmediaunited.com, a website, a cooperative that I started. So go check it out. It's a part of the My Family Thinks Some Crazy stuff that I do to create awesome shows and network with people and build this community and et cetera, et cetera. And if you want to be a part of this community, get in touch with me. People seem to be more comfortable with email. That's fine. MFTICpodcast at gmail.com. You can get in touch with me over Instagram. You can leave us a message if you're brave. Leave us a message at the pod inbox slash MFTIC. And it seems to be that you have to capitalize that for some reason. So be sure to capitalize the acronym for my family thinks I'm crazy. MFTIC pod inbox dot com slash mfts but that's about it follow up on all the things subscribe like tell us what you think leave a good rating we appreciate all you guys who leave a good rating on the itunes and yeah with that folks thank you so much for supporting the my family thinks i'm crazy podcast giving you the tools in case your family thinks you're crazy too what are you gonna do maybe do the quadrant work 